everyone and welcome. It's my pleasure to call to order this San Jose City Council meeting for the afternoon of February 27th. May we please have the roll call? Jimenez. Present. Torres. Present. Cohen. Here. Ortiz. Present. Davis. Duan. Present. Candelas. Here. Foley. Here. Batra. Present. Kame. Here. Mahan. Here. We have a quorum. Great. Thank you very much. Now, if you're able, please stand and join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. Today's invocation will be given by John Juan Vu, former Global Interfaith Prayer Chair at PayPal, and Council Member Jimenez will tell us more. Yeah, thank you, Mayor. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Today we have John Juan Vu, uh, who's going to be giving the invocation. John's motto in life is to find ways to give back his gifts of time, talent, treasure, and testimony, both professionally, personally, and spiritually. In addition to being a product manager, manager at PayPal, John volunteers for the PayPal Believe, an interfaith employee resource group. As a former global interfaith prayer chair, John organized events to not only help his colleagues and leaders pray more, but to reflect each, other's person's, each, each person's faith and worldview to guide their morals and values on how they, as a company, treat their colleagues, their products, and most importantly, their customers. John resides in District 6 with his husband and is involved in the community as a lay minister of the Diocese of San Jose and an LGBTQ plus advisory board member of the San Jose Police Department appointed by Chief Tony Mata. John's biggest accomplishments in life is being alive, which I think we all share, and sharing his stories to elevate others. So John, please. Thank you. So. Before we start, I've given all of you a document of the interfaith invocation for today. And for those who are here, there's also copies back there too. Fasting, let's start talking about that quickly. Fasting is abstaining from something. As a devout Catholic, as you may know, during the time of Lent, many people give up something, abstain from something. If you're a little child, most times we ask people to give up chocolate. Or if you're an adult, give up social media. But for me, and for many people, fasting is a beautiful thing for all faiths. It's to encourage you to abstain from something so you can be transformed later on. I want to say that for our Muslim brothers, sisters, and siblings, during Ramadan, they abstain from so much, including food and water. Why? Because they want to remember the people around the world who do not have food, clean water, or the beautiful rights that the city of San Jose has offered to all the citizens, including me. In front of you, and I will press this awesome button here. Oh, it's so beautiful. I'm asking all of you, if you feel comfortable, to read with me. These little lines are the things I encourage not only the city council, but the whole entire citizens of San Jose to fast from and feast on so if you would like, and you're not required to repeat with me, fast from discouragement, feast on to hope. Fast from worry, feast on to trust. Fast from suspicion, feast on to truth. Fast from differences, feast on to oneness. Fast from guilt, feast on to freedom, 
Fast from hostility, feast onto kindness. Fast from stress, feast onto self-care. Fast from discontent, feast onto gratitude. Fast from pessimism, feast onto optimism. Fast from being in control, feast onto letting go. Fast from bitterness, feast onto forgiveness. Fast from apathy, feast on enthusiasm. Fast from selfish, selfishness, feast onto selflessness. Fast from complaining, feast onto appreciation. Fast from idle gossip, feast onto quiet silence. Fast from thoughts of illness, feast onto healing power. Fast from words that pollute, feast onto words that purify. Fast from withholding anger, feast onto sharing our feelings. Fast from bad habits, feast onto healthy, productive habits. Fast from judging others, feast onto understanding ourselves and others. Fast from isolation, feast onto time with those who love us. Fast from social media, feast onto meaningful relationships. Fast from darkness around us. Feast onto the light within us. Fast from being so busy. Feast onto time with prayer. And lastly, fast from issues that overwhelm us. Feast onto prayerful trust. I want to say thank you to all of you for taking the time to pray with me on this invocation. And I hope that all of you, including the, cities, uh, the citizens of San Jose, will find ways to fast from to hopefully be transformed into someone better. Thank you. Thank you, John. We're now on to ceremonial items. Councilman Candelas, if you'd join me at the podium, we will recognize Mary Escobar. So today, I have the privilege of recognizing an exemplary community leader in my district, Mary Escobar, who's joined right next to me. As a health clerk at George V. Leva Middle School, Mary has supported our youth, working to preserve not just the health of students, but also fostering a caring environment at Leva uh, where students can feel more comfortable and healthier. Uh, her welcoming and empathetic uh, attitude extends to Mary's additional work outside of school hours. Uh, for the past 13 years, the annual Warm for Winter Coat Drive has helped keep our vulnerable community members warm during the harsh winter months. And every year, she's led to the collection of at least 1,000 coats. Uh, but in two 2023, Mary brought the whole community get together for this project by partnering with my office, all the schools within the Evergreen School District, as well as a local nonprofit opening doors. Mary's hard work and persistent effort paid off as we were able to collect a record-breaking number of coats, just over 2,300. Um, every single coat, jacket, and sweater was able to go to our local nonprofit partner uh, to provide to those who need it. So true community requires uh, us to uplift one another. And Mary is the personification of this. 
Um, thank you, Mary, uh, for dedicating your time, your energy, uh, and to making District 8 um, a better and safer and warmer place for everybody. So uh, before I invite the mayor to present the commendation, I'd, I'd love to uh, offer you an opportunity to say a few words. Hi, y'all. Um, my biggest thanks to my husband, Dominic, for delivering truckloads of coats and for allowing the yearly invasion of them to take over his garage. Thank you to my daughter, Michaela, and my son, James, for your love and support. Thanks to my mentor of many years, Chris Quick, RN, who inspires me with her kindness and altruism. To council member, member Candelas and his crew, Sashin and Carolina, who brought so much fun to the kickoff and whose partnership made it possible to collect over 2,000 coats for Vey. And thank you for Tricia and Cindy for showing me the love. Uh, now I'll invite the mayor to present the commendation. to invite Councilmember Cohen on up and Lori and the San Jose Clean Energy team if you all want to come on down. We're going to be recognizing Lori Mitchell and the San Jose Clean Energy team as they head to their fifth year anniversary as a program here, as a department here at the City of San Jose. Congratulations. This team has grown. <laughs> bigger than I remember when we got started. Look at this. Impressive. Hi, everybody. Welcome. We got the whole team here. All right. Excellent. Today, we are recognizing the amazing San Jose Clean Energy team on the occasion of their five-year anniversary. Congratulations on five years of service to our community. I'm so impressed with the growth and impact of the San Jose Clean Energy Program. I'm joined by my colleague, Councilmember David Cohen, who himself has been a great champion for the environment and has advocated for causes like increasing our city's tree canopy, increasing access to electric vehicles and charging, and so many other initiatives to help reduce our environmental impact and preserve our environment for future generations. San Jose's San Jose Clean Energy's roots started way back in 2010 when a group of passionate community advocates came to the city council and asked the council at the time to consider forming a community choice aggregation program. And in 2017, so it took a bit of work and persuasion obviously, but in 2017, the city council unanimously voted to create San Jose Clean Energy. And of course that community aggregation model allows us to pool our purchasing power as a community, as residents and businesses, and 
make decisions about how we use those dollars to prioritize cleaner sources of energy and promote innovation. San Jose Clean Energy helps our city fill an important promise to every resident, keeping costs as affordable as possible while spurring economic prosperity and helping us reach our climate smart goals. We have one of the cleanest mixes of power of any major city in the US and are on track to be carbon neutral by 2030. I've been impressed by how the team and the department's leadership thoughtfully balance economic growth and, and affordability with making sure our neighbors are getting the support they need with programs like SJ Cares and the emergency bill relief pilot. We appreciate their transparency in working with the public, various organizations and city offices to serve our community and explain what are often complex and technical policy decisions. So before we present this commendation on behalf of the council, I'd like to ask San Jose Clean Energy's director, Lori Mitchell, to say a few words. Lori? Thank you, Mayor and Councilmember Cohen. Um, yeah, I'm so proud to have led this team over the last five years. As the mayor said, we are one of the nation's largest renewable energy providers, um, and we've accomplished that in just five years. So while we've also maintained a really high customer participation rate, over 97% of the city is in our program, so only 3% have opted out. Our rates are 8% lower than PG&E right now, and we're 60% renewable energy. And if you think about what the emissions um, reduction goals are, you know, we have reduced over 5 million metric tons of carbon over the last five years, and that's equivalent to taking a million cars off the road. So I really want to thank my whole team here. Um, without their amazing work and dedication, we wouldn't have been able to achieve all these goals and really thank the mayor and the council for all their support over the years. Okay, we are on to orders of the day. I'm gonna to turn to Assistant City Manager Lee Wilcox first. I believe the administration may wanna defer one item. Is that correct? Yes, we'd like to defer item 3.4, uh, the amendments to Title 12 gifts ordinance. We have staff out six, so they're unavailable to present or answer questions. Okay, sounds good. We, we need a motion for that, is that right? Do we have a motion? Second. Was that a motion from Councilor Torres? Okay, and a second from Councilor Dewan. And that again, just for the record, is to defer item 3.4 until we have staff available to do the presentation. 
Any other changes to the printed agenda anyone would like to propose? Okay, let's go to public comment and then we will vote on orders of the day. No public comment. Okay, let's vote. Motion passes. Great, thank you. We're on to the closed session report. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, we have a report out of closed session today. The City Council has unanimously approved uh, in closed session. It'll be coming to uh, open session next week. The filing or the joining of an amicus brief that's uh, also being filed by the Giffords Law Center and the Brady Center to prevent gun violence in the city of Chicago versus West Forth Sports Inc. case. It is uh, venued in the appellate court of Illinois First Judicial District, case number 1-23-1908. And the, uh, it is an appeal from a circuit court of Cook County, Illinois decision um, against the city of Chicago that was bringing an action against a uh, licensed uh, gun business that was not following federal protocols to determine whether or not gun purchases were being made um, as straw purchases. And Chicago's been able to link uh, gun sales at this store in Indiana to gun violence in Chicago. And uh, the city of San Jose has um, its own ordinance and uh, efforts to control straw purchases and has an interest um, similar to that of the city of Chicago and we are therefore um, recommending that the uh, council join the amicus brief. We'll Great. have that in open session next week. Thank That'll you. That'll come to open session next week. Great, thank you, Nora, appreciate that. Okay, we're on to the consent calendar. Are there any items council would like to pull? I believe Councilmember Botcher would like to pull item two point ten. Yes. Any others? That's just for comment, I assume. For comments. Okay. Yes. Great. Anyone else? Okay. Councilor Batra, two point ten. Okay. Thank you, Mayor, for letting me pull a gem hidden in this consent calendar. Okay. Uh, the hidden gem is a project which was first approved as a part of the fiscal year 2019-2020. It's an all-inclusive playground at Almaden Lake, okay, which happens to be in District 10. Okay. This renovation will transform an existing 20,229 square feet playground into an all-inclusive playground for all ages, all abilities, and for all residents. The community will get to use this park, all-inclusive park, in February 2025. The work on the construction is going to expect it to start in May 2024, even though the project was approved in the fiscal year 2019-2020 because of the pandemic and other reasons, it has been pushed out. This is an example of a project which is being funded by the city, by the county, 
and many generous organizations. $671,250 will be given to us for this project by the Santa Clara County under the vision of Joe Smithian, who saw the all-inclusive parks to be available in city of or in the county of Santa Clara. Almaden Valley Rotary Club has given 162,000 and other organizations like Almaden Senior Association, Kiwanis Club, Knight Foundation, Almaden Super Lions Club, West Valley Federated Women's Club. So this is a combination of work by the city staff, city money, county money, and by the generous donations of our altruistic organization. So it will be a park made by all for all. So I want to thank everybody who has worked on it and we will all enjoy it together. Look forward to seeing everybody coming in May 2025 and probably on 4th of July when we celebrate our 4th of July celebration in this park. Everybody is invited right now by the council member district 10. Thank you, Mayor, for giving me the opportunity to tell this story. Absolutely. Thanks, Council Member. And I'll just add a few thank yous. I, I appreciate you continuing to champion this project and how, how much progress has been made over the last year. I also want to thank our former colleague, Councilor Camus, who helped get this into the budget and, and initiated the, the project. And of course, as you mentioned, County of Santa Clara, who's matching a contribution from the city very generously. It's a great partnership. We're doing these all-inclusive play gardens in some of our most significant parks in the city that are used by residents from across the South Bay. Also want to just thank Almaden Rotary, Women's Club, Lions Club, Kiwanis, and all the different community groups who have come together to raise quite a bit of money from the community as well. So I appreciate you highlighting that great community effort. I also saw Councilor Torres's hand go up. Did you have an item from consent you wanted to pull? Or do you want to comment on the all-inclusive play? I have a, a question. Please. Yes. I see John here. John, um, I just want to ask a quick question. Congratulations on the multiple faucets of, of funding, by the way. Uh, this uh, park is being also funded through general fund, capital improvement funds, parked impact, impact fees. John Cicerelli, Director, Park Recreation Neighborhood Services. Yes, these are capital funds which can be a mix of trust funds, construction, conveyance, taxes, those sorts of things. Okay, but great. But it's not, not general fund. Not through the general fund, great. Maintenance of it will be general fund. Of course, yes, great, thank you. That was all the questions I had, yeah. thank you. I make okay. a move, move the motion to accept the consent calendar. Great, we have a motion to accept the consent calendar as a yeah. whole. Second. Great, second from Torres, thank you. Uh, let's go to public comment. No public comment. Okay, let's vote. Motion passes. Great, thank you. Okay, we're on to the land use consent. We have item 10.1A and 10.1B. Members of the council want to pull either item or make a motion? Do we have a motion on land use consent? Second. Thank you. Motion from Councilor Jimenez, second from Foley. Let's go to public comment. No public comment. Okay, let's vote. Motion passes. Great, thank you. Okay, we're on to item 3.1, report of the city manager. 
Thank you, Mayor. I have no report today. All right. Thank you, Jennifer. We're on to item 3.3, annual report on Measure T, the uh, Disaster Preparedness, Public Safety, and Infrastructure General Obligation Bond Program, proceeds and allocations for fiscal year 22-23. We have a brief staff presentation, and we have our oversight committee here, it looks like. Hi, Matt. All right, welcome everyone. Feel free to grab a seat and Matt and Shruti, as soon as you're ready, feel free to jump in. Good afternoon, I'm Matt Lesh, Director of Public Works and with me are three members of our Citizens Oversight Committee for Measure T. So what this is is a presentation of last fiscal year's audit report and their findings of the, from the committee and on the Measure T performance up to date of last June 2023. Of note, we'll be back next month to talk about current status of projects and where they're going as of right now. We'll come back next March for all, this coming March in one month, we'll be here with all the details about all the projects that you'll be asking about uh, and have interest about going forward, okay? Good afternoon, Mr. Mayor, um, City Council members and staff. My name is Shruti uh, from San Jose District 9. Um, as a chair for the San Jose Community Overnight Oversight Committee uh, for this year, I would like to present um, our annual report for the fiscal year 2022-23. Uh, before I begin, uh, just a quick shout out um, to my ad hoc committee members, Vice Chair Nick Cochran, um, District 1 committee member, and ex-chair Gary Cunningham, um, uh, Jay Srinivasan, who's probably on the call um, from uh, District 6, uh, and the rest of the COC staff and also the DPW staff uh, who have really helped us in producing the report and also making sure the oversight process is run very smoothly. Um, our detailed annual report was shared with the council on February 5th, 2024, this month, and uh, which includes all our observations uh, for the fiscal year ending in June 30th, um, 2023. Um, also, um, as for a recommendation from the previous year, um, there was a semi-annual report that the DPW staff shared in September of 2023. Um, uh, we would, for uh, regarding our conclusions, all the COC members have reviewed um, the expenditures uh, and also along with the auditor's report, and we would like to confirm that all of the uh, spending was within the authorized Measure T categories and also expended on a timely basis um, to retain the tax-exempt status. Next slide, please. Um, this table here, um, I mean, just as a recap, shows the Measure T funding was a water-approved fund of $650 million, out of which um, two bonds have been issued, and so far, 440. 0.4 million have been issued to date, 
with a remaining bond of two, 209.6 million. Um, and um, yeah, this is just a summary of what the measure T spending so far has been. Next slide, please. Okay, thank you. Um, this detailed table here really shows our funding, uh, our spending, the audited use of funds by year, by program category. Um, that the total so far for the four years have been 260.7 million uh, from 2019 to 2023 fiscal years. And last year, our spending was 60.3 million. I would like to um, highlight here, majority has, of our funding has been spent on the program category traffic, which is primarily our city streets um, repairs and resurfacing. Um, but, you know, so far, um, the original for the Measure T was 420 miles, out of which uh, the DOT has made significant progress in completing 400 miles as of last, um, sorry, November 2023. 20, they have completed close to 400 miles. But, um, uh, however, the COC would like to, um, is unable to draw more conclusions because we, the, the city refers, uh, surfacing program um, also includes funds from other um, measures like the measure B. Um, so we are not able to entirely, uh, the whole budget of the 300 million was spent accordingly to um, as per the original plan. Next slide, please, thank you. So uh, moving on to our general observations and comments, um, our first big concern is the con continued low rate of spending uh, versus planned spending. Um, as the previous well, table highlighted that from 2019 to 2023, only 59.2% .2 of the 440 million have been spent. And the bond indenture really requires that 85% of the proceeds need to be spent within the three years of issuance to qualify for the tax exempt status. Um, so which means from 135.4 million needs to really be spent between the July 2023 and the 2024 uh, fiscal years um, to, our, to get the tax exempt status. So we, the first tranche that was issued hasn't met the tax exempt status, but the second tranche that was in, uh, introduced, um, issued in 2021, still hasn't. So this is one of our major concerns that has been communicated to the DPW staff. Um, also, any further delays or deferrals uh, will continue to uh, put the Measure T projects at a risk of cost overruns and inflation. Um, this has been the, our concern with the low rate of spending. Um, our second big concern is the public safety projects uh, are at a considerable financial and budgetary risk. Um, this includes several big projects within the city uh, which are important, but uh, as of now, we have uh, completely overrun the public safety reserve when we started off it was close to three, 36 million, and now we are left with only 6 million. If you move to the next slide, 
please. Um, these are all the public safety projects that are currently in the design or the scoping phase, um, which have already have a huge delta that we have used from the public safety reserves. And um, it, you know, as you can see, all of these are very critical infrastructure projects uh, for our city. Okay, moving on. Um, so, um, based on the previous slide, we have two specific recommendations. Number one, we would like to see a priority for these public safety projects um, to ensure that, you know, now, now that we have complete, you know, not so much reserves left and we are still in the very early phases of these projects, we would like to see um, tighter budget process, make sure um, these projects are managed uh, and, and, and assigned a priority so that we are not surprised by any other uh, new corrections and make sure the spending is handled well. And our second recommendation is to fill our COC seats. As of now, we have District 7, District 10, Citywide Labor, and uh, Finance and Accounting open. Uh, I, we just heard that um, Councilmember Batra is full, almost ready to fill the District 10 seat, so we're very happy for that. Uh, the District 7 seat has been open for a very long time, and um, you know we would really like this to be filled um, as soon as possible, uh, so that we can have effective meetings. Because we, previously we've had to cancel meetings without having a quorum, and uh, I'm sure this is a fair representation from all our districts. So thank you, thank you for this opportunity, and uh, yeah, any other questions? Thank you. Great, does that include the presentation? I'm gonna assume it does, okay. Matt, you're good? Okay, great, well, thank you for that uh, report from the Oversight Committee, Shruti, um, Nick, and Gary, wanna thank you and your colleagues for providing this really important oversight role. We can't oversee everything ourselves, which is why we rely on citizen-led commissions to help us keep an eye on everything, ask those questions, and produce this kind of analysis. Definitely an insightful report. I appreciate your service to the community, so thank you for putting in the time, and noted that we have some open seats we need to work on filling, so I just made a note to myself to work on that. Uh, we're gonna go to public comment, and then we'll come back for council deliberation. No public comment. Okay, we're back to council deliberation. Thank you, okay. We're moving right along here. Let me turn to colleagues. As I do that, I'll just, I'll add the recognition to the transportation department. Uh, overall, I think we're doing a really good job of getting out there and through that backlog of under-maintained roads. Clearly the report raises some other areas where uh, maybe we can accelerate efforts. But let me, let me go to colleagues first. I see Councilor Batra, who I know, uh, as I, if I remember correctly, served on this commission. Is that right? All right, council member, let's, let's see those tough questions. Yeah, so I, I resigned from that commission after getting appointed as a council member. So I was there for three years. Uh, so I had the real the privilege to work with the people we were presenting today, and I still miss them as a part of that committee. So uh, I, I have provided the name of District 10 representative a very qualified, very passionate person to serve on a public service 
So you will find hard to be a great colleague on that one. So that's number one. Uh, I do have a couple of questions. The pages which show public safety projects at financial budget risk, the numbers which are in prances, are they overrun or are they representing the underrun? There's the spending overrun. Oh, right. So that's how much we ate into the public safety reserves. So, so the biggest ones I see, there's the police department training center and police department air support unit hangar, 13 million and 9 million look like they are either the cost is going to be more or something is definite. Do we have the money within the buckets to shift or we are at the risk of not being able to do these two projects? Um, I'd like to have uh, you know Matt here from the DBW answer them, but yeah, as of now they have been, you know, they've been assigned from the reserves. But please go ahead. So, yes, there's a, there is money in the reserves, and so the, again, this is the numbers as of June 30th, 2023, not current dollars or the current right. awards. And those projects were awarded, and those projects are under construction. Okay, all right. So, so they're not at. Those are not at risk for being done, that's correct. Excellent. Yeah, so based on my experience, I think I can say that the public works have done a great job of managing this number of projects in various categories, and with $650 million, you kept the projects within the scope, original scope, and you've also kept them within the budget and you juggle money around from one place to the other to make sure that everything continues to happen. And uh, this $135 million which you need to spend uh, before July 2024, are you comfortable that you're gonna be able to do that and not run the risk of having the IRS issues? So when we come back next in March, next month, we will display to you the project and our implementation okay. schedule and the plans. So again, these are numbers as of June last okay. year. We've already expended some of them now as of this current date, and we'll show you in March what exactly is going to happen with the rest of it. Okay, great. Okay, thank you very much for the alerting of the thing and, and the uh, proceeding the projects and keeping track of it. Uh, it uh, thank you very much for your service, and thank you very much public works keeping everything on track. Uh, this was a complex set of projects and uh, many different areas. So I appreciate all the great work done by both the COC and the public works. Thank you, Mayor. Great, I thank, you. thank the, you. Make the motion to accept the report. Okay, thank you. I have a motion and a second. Let me turn to Councilmember Foley. Thank you, thank you, Shruti, for that presentation. Um, and thank you to Public Works for the, the work and particularly the CO, COC for overseeing how the dollars in, are spent and that they're spent in accordance with the bond measure that was passed by our voters. Matt, you answered the question, but I wasn't clear about it. You said we're going to talk about it in March, but I'm wondering if we could talk about it briefly without going into specifics. Are you saying that the dollars that we need to spend by June 30th, we will be able to? Yes. Okay, that's what I wanted to hear. 
And if we aren't, what is the risk? You said yes, but what's the downside if something happens and we can't? So the question would be is, so um, I'll have to ask finance to talk about the bond issues and so that we're, what, the, what are at risk if we are unable to at any point rearrange any money to, towards projects that are implementable. Um, and so we have a slate of projects that are on, that are on track um, and do we have any flexibility around those allocations to move things forward or not? And so I see someone from finance who's going to tell us exactly what happens if at all we can't rearrange enough and meet that bond expenditure. But you're confident that we can. I'm just, I just yes. want to understand the risk if, if something happens. Sure. Um, thank you, Councilmember Burley. My name is Chen Yuza. I'm the Deputy Director of Finance for Debt and Treasury. So the IRS has very strict spending rules for tax exempt bond proceeds. Um, uh, the, the COC member, uh, committee member I have talked about, uh, IRS requires us to spend 85% uh, of the tax exempt bond proceeds within three years of issuance. Um, so we are running up to some pro issues with the 2021 bond proceeds. Um, some of the bonds are sold as tax exempt. We have not reached the 85% mark. We have been diligently monitoring the bond spending within the city. We are documenting um, all the city's project pro process, uh, creating internal memo files for the city um, to be prepared if the IRS would audit that. Um, there is a no definitive conclusion whether we, the city will lose a tax exempt status for those funds, but we are documenting all the process to be able to explain to IRS should they come to the city for not it. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. That's good information and I look forward to the report next month. Four weeks, thank you. That's it for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Council Member. Appreciate the question. Vice Mayor Kameh. Don't go away yet. <laughs> so, so um, first of all, I want to thank the committee for all your wonderful work and, and time in, in doing this and bringing it to our attention. You know, I was, I was wondering, when we're talking about spending, uh, is spending like, like, in, like invoices and money out the door? or is allocated and appropriated sufficient? When we talk about spending, we're talking about money being paid out. Paid Spend, out the door, yeah, okay. Expenditure okay. incurred. Okay, so it sounds like we have a situation where there's a high uh, probability that we will be okay and spend it before our time frame. The other thing that I, I was wondering was is there a way that, you know, through our planning, we, we can avoid this? Because this has sort of been accumulating over time. And uh, I just think that in terms of looking at our planning and all of that, we still have a chunk of bonds that has not been issued so that when we're going to do that, we can kind of like lay things out a little bit so that we're not in this situation. Sure, good assessment. Um, 
Vice Mayor Comey. Yes, uh, finance is working with the departments, including public works, closely um, to determine the timing of the bond issuance. Originally, we had a plan to issue additional geo debt this year. Uh, we have assessed all the project spending, determined this year we don't really need the money uh, to issue. Uh, so we are going to reassess all the project spending next next year, meaning January 2025, to determine to determine whether we will issue additional geo debt uh, in, in 2025. So uh, we are really watching the project spending closely, try to time the project at the bond issuance to coincide with the construction uh, progress. Yeah, and 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 lastly, you know, I'm just. I know this is sort of like uh, hindsight is 2020, but you know, how how did we even get to this? Was it during the COVID season, or well, I, I'm just wondering how we got behind in the spending? Well, I think there's been several things that have gone on. S some of the projects when we've gone out to bid, we've had to rebid them, and so schedules oh, have gotten changed um, on that. Some of it was acquisition to, to design, and so. Since I've taken over as director, it's kind of get everything reconnoitered and get the plan organized and get things implemented. And so you'll see things we've already implemented already. Again, this is, what's sort of tricky about this report is you see things as they were in June, Before, not as yeah. they are as now. And as you've seen, we've met, issued awards to several projects already that will consume some of the money. The key thing for her is that we spend it. And so not just issue the project and award the project, but actually get things built and invoices paid. And so you'll see those things tracking as well. Okay. And so Thank we, you. we have a good plan. We're hoping to execute on the plan, We're in, but hope's not a strategy or a plan. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Vice Mayor. Councilmember Dwan. Thank you, the report, and thank you for the great work. Um, only got one question. If we lose the tax exempt, what is the approximate cost it's going to cost the city? Sorry, could you repeat so, your question? There's a bit accurate you couldn't hear. Right, so, so if we lose the tax exempt, meaning we're gonna have to pay taxes, um, how much would that be? It's a bondholder, so I couldn't get the last few words of yours. So if the IRS will assess the city's bond exempt status and determine that bonds need to be uh, will lose the tax exempt status to become taxable, there will be a huge impact to the market because all the bump holders, uh, they have not paid any income tax for the, uh, for the interest payment they have received and they will be, on the, um, be liable to paying all the back income tax. And also the city put, could potentially be risked to, uh, to receive some penalties from IRS. That's hope. It's not going to happen to the city. Uh, that's why we're making every effort to documenting the city's good faith effort, effort to monitor the project, trying to do our best to spend the bond proceeds within the reasonable amount of time. So both bondholders and the city will be liable for taxes? Potentially, uh, yeah. Potential taxes. Yeah, but well, let's say we, we lost the exemption. What are the percent of taxes would that be? for both the bondholders and, and the city? The tax rate? Per, yeah, tax rate. The tax rate will be, for bondholders, it will be, become, um, be 
depending on your income tax bracket. Uh, the city is not tax taxable organization or tax exempt municipal corporation. We're not uh, liable to pay income taxes, but we will get some penalties. And then there are also some uh, hidden risk towards that. If the city loses tax exempt status, it will cause uh, some loss of confidence in the market. And uh, in the future, could the city could risk uh, some um, access to the capital market. We are a large city and we always need a capital improvement needs. We want to be able to have access to the capital art market to be able to raise that. Um, and I want the entire council to be fully assured the city staff is working, working making every effort to document our process and improve, improving our uh, project uh, you know, uh, progress and then try to spend the money as soon as we can. I have full confidence in uh, our staff to do so. Thank you. Thanks, Council Member. Appreciate that. Uh, Councilor Jimenez. Yeah, thank you. Just uh, had a few simple questions related to slide six. And uh, if you look at the slide, it, you know, it's titled uh, Public Safety Projects, Financial Budget Risk, and then goes through Measure T Projects, Project Location. That's the first question that I had is obviously some are listed as District 7, some are listed as CW. I'm trying to understand. But specifically, the police training center, I was thinking. It's, it's a citywide. Citywide. Oh, oh, I understand. Yeah. That, that, that the implications are citywide as well. Yes. Oh, I, I get it. I get it. Okay. And then I was going to ask what, I don't know if it's reallocated or relocated that's next to the police department training center. Is that, what is that in reference to? So we're moving it from, remember some of the work is being done okay, at the I substation, get, now it. it's being built in. I get it, okay, okay. I was, I was, when I saw that, I was like, are we moving things around? And then I didn't see the council, just, so anyways, I was, I was a little concerned for a moment, but cool. Thank you, appreciate it. Great, thanks council member. Okay, um, appreciate my colleagues' questions. Uh, yeah, I was also gonna ask some questions about our ability to spend down, but it sounds like best thing to do is wait four weeks, get the update in March, and we'll see where staff thinks we are. Uh, so appreciate that. Thank you for the report. Very helpful to hear from the oversight committee. I don't see any other hands. We do have a motion on the floor to accept the report. So let's go. We, we already asked for public comment. We did, okay, we're ready to vote. Motion passes. Great. Thank you. All right. Thank you all again. We are on to, let's see here, we have deferred under orders of the day, we deferred item 3.4, so we are on to item 3.5, request for a revolving door waiver. Just and an introduction, Mayor. I believe, yes. Go ahead. The city's revolving door ordinance applies when a former employee goes to work for an entity that may come before the city council. In general, the former employee is prohibited for one year from coming before the city council, council committees, city boards or commissions, or city staff to lobby or represent another entity. The council can waive the prohibition if it determines that it is in the city's best interest to allow the former employee to come before the council and its various officials. Magdalena Carrasco is here and has submitted a letter requesting a waiver. She was employed as the District 3 Chief of Staff for three months and her one-year revolving door period will end on April 1st, 2024. The Rules Committee has forwarded this request to the Council for consideration. The Council can approve or deny the revolving door waiver request. 
And if the council determines that it is in the city's best interest and consistent with the purposes of the revolving door ordinance to grant the waiver, it will need to adopt the findings on page three of the staff memo. Great, thank you. And just process-wise, do we hear from the applicant or do we just go straight to public comment? Yes, Magdalena Carrasco is gonna make her way to the podium. Great, former Councilor Carrasco, welcome. It's good to see you. Good afternoon, everybody. Nice to see you all, uh, mayor, vice mayor, and former colleagues. Um, I, I have to apologize in advance. Uh, the committee members from the Rules Committee already heard my speech, but I thought it was so good, so I'm keeping it as is, so <laughs> apologies. Um, I'm here to request a waiver to the city's revolving door ordinance so that I may continue doing the work that I love and that I'm so deeply passionate about. Uh, this is work that I also believe is uh, of great benefit to the entire community of the city of San Jose. Uh, at Latino Education Advancement Foundation, otherwise known as LEAF, and EEI, which is the Eastside Education Initiative, we're launching an informative campaign that sheds light on the disparities in education funding, particularly in the areas such as East San Jose, Franklin McKinley School District, um, Oak Grove, and San Jose Unified School District. The lack of Adequate funding results in a scarcity of resources and support for our kiddos, creating a detrimental domino effect that hinders our students' preparedness and success for higher education. And I'm sure you've seen them, but the statistics are worth mentioning. They're alarming. Only 17% of our kiddos who attend community college end up transferring to four-year. And even when they transfer to four-year, the graduation rates are dismal at best. Moreover, every single year, approximately 4,000 students from San Jose Unified School District and Eastside Union uh, High School District graduate into minimum paying jobs. That means that these students are just not prepared uh, to take on life's challenges or to live in Silicon Valley for that matter. LEAF is dedicated to supporting our students through various initiatives, including academic, meeting academic requirements and ongoing support in college. We empower parents through 31 workshops that we uh, produce every single year to a tune of almost 1,200 parents a year that are being trained. Uh, we've given about a million dollars in scholarship funds, $50,000 in emergency funds, especially during the pandemic. Our efforts have yielded a promising result with our students maintaining an impressive 91% persistence rate in college. That means that those kiddos who do make it into the four year and into community college, uh, approximately 91% of those kiddos are actually staying and graduating. It's impressive. This success underscores the invaluable impact of our work in shaping the future of our youth. I'm committed to continuing uh, to add, I hope, value to this conversation. Uh, I'm definitely committed to our students in the city of San Jose, especially those who, who really are in need of support. I hope that you'll consider my request. Thank you. Great. Thank you, former Councilor Carrasco. Great to see you. When we go to public comment. No other public comment. Back to Great. council. Great. We'll come back to the council then. Thank you. Councilor Torres. Yes. It is my honor to move and approve item 3.5 as Councilmember Carrasco was my former boss. So. All right. We have a second from Councilmember Foley. Thank you both. Uh, Councilmember Batra, do you have a comment or a question? 
No, I have a comment. Uh, sure. I think our employee is going towards advancing the education and we are always supportive of making the education of the next generation to be the key item because our future lies on them. So I'm very supportive of this move to make that exemption be given and hardly ever to carry on the work he is so dearly loves to carry and the city needs to be carried. Thank you. All right. Thank you for those comments, council member. Not seeing any other hands, let's vote. Motion passes. All right, excellent. We are on to item 4.1. This is our 911 event data analysis report. And we'll begin with a staff presentation. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Peter Hamilton. I'm an assistant to the city manager in the city manager's office. And I'm joined today in the box for the presentation by uh, Deputy uh, Chief Brian Schab. And we're here today to present to you on the 911 event data analysis report. And this report uh, or originates with the mayor's March budget message from last year, uh, which, uh, as approved by the council, directed the city manager to identify types of 911 events that could be responded to with a resource other than police officers. Uh, so that is, the, that is the question we attempt to answer with this report. What categories of 911 events can receive an alternate response? And a few words about uh, kind of the goal and the, the methodology of this project. So start with the question, well, why would we want to send someone other than police uh, staff to an event? And we really came up with two, two benefits. First, uh, you know, our police officers are very good at what they do, but there are some circumstances where there may be civilian personnel with different types of training that can serve, uh, that can serve the public better in certain circumstances. For example, somebody experiencing a mental health event, um, a clinician who's trained to help somebody in that situation may provide better service to the public. So that's one advantage. And the other advantage, if there are events that really, or officers are not needed, uh, or uh, if we can respond with another service, or um, you know that potentially could free up officer time, which is very valuable and would be a benefit to the city. So those are the benefits, and the, the approach we took with this uh, report is really, really two axes of analysis. One, we looked at uh, police event data for the years of 21, 2022, and uh, nine months of 23. Uh, and uh, we also uh, interviewed other jurisdictions uh, throughout the country, in California and throughout the country that are implementing uh, this type of alternate service. I would just say here that, in, especially in the data analysis, the police department put a lot of work into helping us produce the data, understand it, and really think through the policy implications. So we really greatly appreciate 
their partnership on this project. And with that, I'll turn it over to Deputy Chief Shab to say a few words. Thank you, Peter. Good afternoon, Mr. Mayor, uh, Madam Vice Mayor, and members of the council. Um, Brian Shab, Deputy Chief uh, and Executive Officer for the Police Department. Before we proceed much further in the presentation, I wanted to take a moment to affirm the department's commitment to this process, and in particular, this project. It's always been, and will continue to always be, the priority for the department to deliver the very best services as possible to the residents of San Jose. Understanding that sometimes the nature of that service must evolve with the needs of our residents. The matter of who provides that service uh, is not a matter of politics or rhetoric, but simply a matter of putting round pegs in round holes. While we, we believe there is an opportunity for alternate responses in select cases from organizations with specialized skills that would not only provide more pragmatic service, but at the same time ease the burden on an already uh, overburdened police department. It's crucial to recognize the department's commitment to continuing its role as a primary responder for calls involving public safety. We appreciate the council and city manager's direction and, and collaboration with the department in this process, and we look forward to the continued work. Thank you. All right. So now we'll run through just some high-level conclusions uh, from, from this analysis. Uh, and first, a few definitions. When we say alternate response, what that means is the response to um, a 911 event with just civilians. So civilian response, no police officers going out to the scene. When we say co-response, that means a response with both civilians and a police officer. Right? So Given the nature of the circumstance, given safety considerations, uh, one response may be appropriate, you know, dep depending on the circumstance. And in the report, just to kind of set the, set the context, we go through what the city and the county are currently doing in the, in the realm of co-response and alternate response. And that's what this matrix shows. The first two rows at the top show the city and county partnership on co-response, PERT and MCAT, where we send out officers and clinicians uh, to events where uh, an individual's in mental health crisis. Uh, then under county services, the 988 crisis hotline, it's a call center staffed by counselors where people um, in distress can call in and receive assistance over the phone. And 988 can also refer to the county's four field teams that can respond to people out in the field and those are the last four rows. The mobile crisis response team, it's a team of uh, licensed clinicians which um, uh, can uh, help, can respond to higher acuity uh, in mental health events, people in a mental health crisis. MRSS is the same but focused more on children and youth. Uh, Trust uh, is staffed by an EMT, a crisis intervention specialist and a peer support specialist. It's for lower acuity mental health events. Uh, and uh, then the IHOT team is really the follow-up team. Uh, it uh, can people identified through the other teams or people who are high-frequency users or emergency services, it can follow up and try to connect them with services. So that's what we're currently doing. And as we looked at, uh, as we looked at the data to see what categories of calls may be appropriate, there are a few different variables we have in the data that help us in the analysis. 
Uh, one is event type. Every uh, event in the police department's CAD is assigned a type depending, you know, whether it's an assault or a homicide or a disturbance, what have you. So we can look at event types. The police department has also recently implemented flags for events uh, to indicate unhoused or mental health involvement. So at the end of the event, uh, the officer will essentially just check a box saying uh, uh, whether there was an unhoused or an individual with mental health Ill illness involved in the event. And those two sit on top of each other. So it can, each, each event would have an event type and it may also have a flag. So we can look at both of those. And finally, uh, when, call, when events come into the call center, they're assigned a priority level to indicate the level of risk and emergency. So one or two are your imminent risk uh, um, or uh, crime in progress or recently uh, crime recently committed uh, that's a, an emergency event. Three and four are lower risk events and five or six are events initiated by the officer out in the field. So using, using those variables, we came up with this list of uh, event categories to study. Uh, uh, nine, we studied nine categories in all. The first three there in blue, mental health, unhoused, and substance abuse. These are uh, events involving individuals who really could use some specialized care from a civilian. And I think in looking at our current services, looking at other programs around the country, these are really the bread and butter of an alternate response. This is, um, you know, uh, quite well, can be quite, depending on the circumstance, can be quite well suited uh, for a civilian response. Uh, uh, the and note that there's disability there down at the bottom. We didn't, we're not quite to the place with the police data where we can analyze uh, disability data. So we didn't analyze it as part of the report, but it's quite common for these kind of services to respond out to people who uh, may have developmental disabilities in the in crisis. So we just noted that in the report as something we should consider even though we didn't have data. Uh, and then the ones in yellow there, those are event types that are, we find are often associated with a mental health or unhoused flag. Uh, welfare check when you're going out to somebody's worried somebody may not be all right maybe they're sitting on the sidewalk somebody's worried about them send somebody out to check on their well-being um, uh, so we find that mental health events unhoused events commonly get categorized in these event types and these may be places to look finally uh, parking uh, we already have a well-built out uh, alternate response for parking we have um, parking enforcement officers we have CSOs but we found in the, the analysis that we are still sending officers out uh, part of the time and identified that the, the vehicle concerns feature that's coming to 311 may be a, a good opportunity to reduce the number, coming in, number of calls coming in to 911 non-emergency for parking. Finally, two categories where we, uh, we don't recommend proceeding with alternate response. First, domestic violence. Uh, just based on the, the potential criminality, the, the, the risk inherent in this event type, we, have, we didn't find any jurisdiction that sent out civilians without police officers to a domestic violence event, so we don't recommend doing that. Uh, but there are some examples of cities that send out civilians along with officers to support survivors. So that, that, is, that is a service model that uh, we could consider. Uh, vehicle stops, there are lots of obstacles. Primarily, California law prohibits civilians from making vehicle stops. There are also logistical and safety issues. So we can, con there's, we can continue to follow state legislation on this issue, but don't recommend moving forward now. And a, a summary of the, the data analysis. Uh, so the pie chart on the left there uh, shows in the, the colored categories are the ones we believe may be appropriate for uh, alternate response. And worth noting that the, the small slice right up at the top is our current MCAT response. 
so about 0.4% of all calls. Uh, and uh, the, those colored slices there where we think um, they, uh, they, they may be opportunities are about 27% of all, of all calls. Uh, and then the pie chart on the left, uh, we, we, pull, we use the priority levels to pull out all of the priority one and two calls and all of the priority five and six calls where priority three and four are the lower risk calls that may be the best opportunity in the, in the short run for a civilian response. And so um, that, that's, we show the colored categories there, just, just the priority three and four calls, and that's about 9% of all calls. Uh, but still al almost 20,000 calls. So even though it's smaller, there are still tens of thousands of calls that uh, we, we might consider. Just some other data highlights. Uh, the pie chart on the left shows all of the, the proportion of events that are flagged as mental health that are also flagged as unhoused. So you can see of events that are flagged as mental health, 47% are flagged as unhoused, so it's really significant overlap in those two categories. And the, the table on the right is showing the top 10 event types for mental health flags. And this kind of shows our thinking behind the disturbance, trespassing, uh, welfare check, suspicious circumstances categories, because all of those appear, uh, appear in the top 10 here for mental health flags. Finally, we, had, we have 11 findings. Uh, the, fir the first two really speak to next steps. Uh, because the county already has a uh, fairly complete suite of services available in their, in their field response teams, and we already have a co-response partnership with them, we believe that the next step would be a concerted effort to, deter to um, come up with a, a plan for which calls uh, we might begin turning over, and then think through what teams would need to, from the county would need to, would we want to respond to those, what the capacity and resource considerations would be. Uh, so if the council desires us to, to move forward with this work, that's, that's what we would recommend. Uh, findings three and four really have to do with how calls are transferred back and forth between 911 and 988, or from 911 directly to one of this county's field teams, which obviously, to the extent we increased um, uh, partnership with the county, thinking through that transfer process would be important. Uh, and the, the rest of them really have to do with the categories I've already discussed. Just note that finding five has to do with disability, even though we didn't have data, we still think it's worth considering. And then all of the rest of the findings are uh, by category, or as I've already discussed. So that concludes our presentation. Great, thank you for that analysis. You know, I put this, uh, suggested this direction in the budget message last year and appreciate all of my colleagues supporting it because I, I do think there's a real opportunity for us to partner more closely with the county to both better serve vulnerable residents dealing with behavioral health challenges, being unhoused, uh, other vulnerabilities where law enforcement's unlikely to be able to provide adequate service levels and then also free up our very thinly staffed department to go focus on where our officers can have the greatest impact in keeping the community safe. And I appreciate that you kind of highlighted that purpose at the top of the presentation. Uh, certainly agree with the findings and the real need to partner more closely with the county who, as we all know, really has the primary responsibility for the uh, public health, mental health systems and um, providing some of that social safety net and social services. So the more that we can partner and leverage each other's strengths and funding streams and jurisdiction, the greater we're gonna be able to serve our community and every, everyone in our community. 
We'll come back for council deliberation in just a moment. I believe we have a number of comment cards, so why don't we get to public comment? Yes, we have a couple of uh, public commenters. As I call your name, please make your way to the podium. And when you get to the podium, please state your first name so we could mark that you've already spoken. Jordan, Emily, Lanny, Michaela, and Mike. Thank you, Council. My name is Mike. This is Andrew's story. Some years ago, while battling untreated mental illness, I lost my job, my family, and my home. I broke down sobbing when a doctor asked me how I was doing. Medical staff called EMTs to get me to psychiatric treatment and requested no police presence, as I was complying. I had committed no crime, yet the police still came and cuffed me to a stretcher to be taken to jail. Thankfully, while police argued with staff, the EMTs put me in an ambulance and took me to the hospital. The trip opened doors for me to get mental health treatment, connect with social workers, and take my life back step by step. If I had gone to jail, I would not have received the care I needed and the trauma would have closed that door. Had I gone to jail, I don't think I'd be alive today. We must stop criminalizing mental health and destroy the stigma. Why send cops when there are medical and mental health professionals dedicated to helping? Just as there is no room for police presence in physical health, there is none in mental health. This is Andrew's story. This could be our story. Thank you. This is the story about how Big Go Ti Jung was killed. On July 13, 2003, Big Gao Ti Jung, a young mother of two with mental health problems the police knew about at the time, was running erratically down the street. Her youngest son, who was two years old, was unsupervised, so the neighbors called the police for help. When the police arrived, they had made no attempt to de-escalate the situation. Instead, it only took seconds to shoot and kill her, despite the fact that nine previous encounters with her made it clear that she had issues. A police officer deemed that this 98-pound Vietnamese woman holding a vegetable peeler a threat and took her life when what she needed most was a trained mental health professional to de-escalate the situation. These lack of proper resources for those experiencing mental health crises has ensured that families like Big Gulls will now never know what could have happened when, if their lives had been saved instead. This was Big's story. This could have been our stories. Thank you. Wani Ballard. According to the Mercury News, between 2014 and 2021, 20 out of 25 people killed by police were classified as mentally ill or intoxicated. Between 2014 and 2021, the Merck documented that over 70% of those seriously injured and killed by San Jose police were, were impaired by either mental illness or substance abuse. Since San Jose be began training police 
in crisis intervention, the number of people harmed by police while impaired by mental illness or substance, substance abuse has actually increased. In almost 25% of the confrontations, police officers initiated the encounter, mostly for minor infractions. Other times they spotted or were called to help someone acting erratically when the incident spiraled out of control. These st statistics all point to the fact that police, even with extra mental health crisis training, are not the right responders. Trust are the right responders for the thousands of interactions that 9-11 event analysis identified for diversion to alternate response. Thank you. Calling the next batch of speakers, please make your way to the podium. Lori, Andrew, and Cindy. This could have been Bic's story. If trust existed in 2003, Bic's neighbors would have called and could have called even if they spoke only Vietnamese. The trust program has people on staff who speak Spanish and Vietnamese and, have trans and has, a, has a translation line with a capacity for translating over 40 languages. Everyone should have an opportunity to be heard, helped, and healed. No one in need should ever lose their life due to a language or communication barrier. If the trust team could have responded back in 2003, they would have talked with Vic and her neighbors and family. The trust teams, which include a mental health professional, a peer supporter, and a first aid responder, are trained to center the client and their loved ones. Maybe if trust had existed in 2003, Vic Gao would still be alive. Maybe her daughter would still have her mom. This could have been Vic Gao's story, and it could be ours as well. Jordan Muldow, District 3. First of all, please fund more trust teams. Second of all, the report analyzes vehicle stops but makes no recommendations because it says that alternate responses aren't allowed. I think that's not good enough. I think there needs to be a little more digging into that. Um, to the extent possible, the police force should be able to use automated enforcement or other forms of no contact enforcement if necessary. Um, to the extent that that is currently legal, under California law to the extent that it isn't, I think it could be beneficial for the city council to direct the IGR team to try to you know, talk to legislatures in Sacramento and make more forms of automated enforcement legal and more forms of no contact enforcement legal. Um, and also there's no data about breakdowns about the no report section that's by far the largest and there's no data about, well, why did they initiate the traffic stop in the first place? I think if we had a breakdown like that, that might lead to uh, more discussion of, okay, there's these things that usually don't go anywhere, so don't bother responding to those kinds of things. Um, in other categories, so a, this, a big section of data was about suspicious calls. Um, whether a person is acting suspicious is very, um, you know, person-to-person -person subjective, and so I don't think there should be police responses for suspicious calls unless there's something more substantial to that. So I think that's another big avenue where there's a missing recommendation for possible alternative responses. Um, in general, no report um, is a very big um, area of how these events end up 
uh, ending up. And so there needs to be more digging into how do we just stop 911 for responding to those in the first place. Finally, 311 needs to be much more ubiquitous and easy to use so that people use that when it's relevant instead of 911. Afternoon. My name is Cindy, uh, and this is Eric Esesalem, and this is Eric's story. A young named Eric came to the Welcome Center at Secret Heart Community Service and told, that, and told them that he was thinking about suicide and wanted to transport to the mental health urgent care. Secret Heart, for liability reasons, we cannot transport any members, so the worker called 911 and asked for emergency services. Again, ask for emergency services. The worker made sure, emphasized that Eric was calm, he was not in danger to himself, to others. It specifically said we did not need police presence, just an ambulance to take him to the mental health urgent care. Instead of an ambulance, six armed our officers show up. How many? Six. One of the six officers began actively provoking Eric and to get right of him. Instead of showing compassion, empathy, he was provoking him. He needed support. One of the most experienced Secret Heart staff members had to put aside all the police officers and ask him to stop his co-worker to, to escalate, instead of escalating the situation, which luckily he was willing able to do. Eventually, thanks to this intervention, Eric was handcuffed and put back into the squad car without any police violence. We hope he was taken to the mental health facility but we have no way of knowing. This is Eric's stories, and this could be our story. Thank you. Calling the next batch, Mary, Kim, and Susan. Andrew Ziegler, District 3. Trust has proven successful in de-escalating behavioral health crises. Their field teams are trained to focus on prevention and to center the client and their loved ones. They aim to resolve the crisis and or transport people to services. Roughly two-thirds of the calls are resolved over the phone. If the situation requires, the call center will dispatch the trust truck. Between January and March 2023, only five out of 578 trust calls resulted in police presence. Again, only five out of 578 trust calls resulted in police presence. The 911 events report makes clear that there are tens of thousands of police interactions each year that can and should be diverted to more appropriate responders. We already have the appropriate responders for behavioral health crises and substance abuse crises, and that's trust. The city just needs to help expand to meet the demand identified in the 911 events report. Thank you. I'm Lori. Earlier you heard Mike share Andrew's story, uh, the actual story that happened to Andrew when he medical staff called EMTs and police showed up with them. Thankfully, the EMTs were able to get him to care. This could have been Andrew's story. If trust existed when Andrew had a crisis, there would have been no need to say, don't send the police and the police would not come. Andrew would have avoided the additional trauma 
of a large police presence. He would have been calmed down by professionals and peers without guns, without handcuffs, without physicality, and without the threat of incarceration for his illness. Mental health care should not be left up to chance. Andrew was lucky that the medical staff vigorously defended him and that the EMTs took charge and put him in the ambulance. With trust, Andrew would have experienced the care he needed without being pushed further into crisis. He wouldn't have the ongoing trauma from that day, waking up in cold sweats thinking, what if it had gone the other way? This could be Andrew's story, and it could be ours as well. Hello, I'm Mary. A national survey of sheriffs and police departments found that 20% of total law enforcement staff time was used to respond to and transport individuals with mental illness in 2017. Makes no sense. Sending the right responder to behavioral health situations instead will save money because using police is much more costly in both money and harm. In fact, civilian crisis response is the optimal response for behavioral crisis. Data from Los Angeles County show that over time, co-responder teams with, with police are significantly more costly, while not as effective as civilian teams that are comprised of a behavioral health clinician and a peer support specialist. That is the trust model. National guidelines for behavioral health crisis response also recommend that mobile crisis teams should incorporate peers, but avoid law enforcement accompaniment. So trust is in line with federal best practices. Trust is already up and running and working, and the city of San Jose should follow through on the 2022 recommendation from the community-led reimagining public safety process to fund an additional field team for San Jose. Calling the next batch, Shiloh, Deb, and Sandra. Good afternoon, my name is Kim. And if trust existed back when Eric came to the Welcome Center at Sacred Heart Community Service, if trust had responded to Eric instead of the police, maybe we'd know the end of his story. Maybe we'd know that he's okay now. Andrew's story, Bick's story, and Eric's story could and should have ended differently. And each of their stories could be your story or the story of someone you love. It could be my story. It could be the story of any one of us, and the story especially of our neighbors who are most vulnerable to police violence. You can change the story. You're exactly the people. You can change lives. Together we can make new stories for all of us. Please fund trust. Trust is public safety, and trust is a safe path to help for all of us. Thank you. Good afternoon, city council members and mayor. My name is Susan Price. And um, two-thirds of all the calls to trust uh, were from San Jose. Now, I've heard 
recently that someone was saying that their San Jose now has a trust team. That is not really true. It's the West San Jose, which really means West County, because it's not exclusively San Jose. San Jose needs its own dedicated trust team, because, I mean, the east side and south are not really adequately covered. Um, now, each trust field team costs about $1.9 That could be shared with the county, but the city should probably be contributing something. And the money that is saved by not sending out police officers to these calls uh, is considerable and could be used to fund another trust team. Um, also, the and, and the city manager's report does say that alternative te teams could be sent to mental health calls and to um, homeless calls, as that report revealed today. Um, now, the other thing is this, the city of San Jose has M mobile, let's see what they're called, mobile crisis team assessment, MCAT teams in, in the police department, in which uh, it's, they're called co-response teams. A police officer goes with a mental health person. Well, the, um, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's national guidelines say that these teams are not cost effective and they're not that effective. Uh, you want to cut costs, don't have, don't call the, the CAT team. Um, and sometimes if there's a police officer there, they're not trained for this work. Call the people who are trained for this work, and that's mental health professionals. And, and appears. Thank you. Next speaker. Good afternoon. My name is Shiloh Ballard, resident of D6. Um, first, I want to thank staff and the city manager's office for putting together a really wonderful process for this. Um, and I know you all get lots of reports, but this one's really worth reading if you haven't read it yourself, if you had staff read it and advise you. Um, read it. It's really good. Um, okay, so I wanted to make three points. One is uh, the findings are great. Oh, also, just want to say yes to everything that's been said here already. Um, the findings are great. Uh, directing staff to come back with a work plan um, is important. And I just want to emphasize, you know, the RIPS recommendations came out in 2022, I think, and we're still here discussing how to move forward. So really, really important to have a timeline associated with that plan. And hopefully there are some near-term changes that can be made in like a three-month time frame or a six-month time frame while staff is figuring out what is the plan, what are the priorities. So that's one thing. Timeline, super important, and let's get some stuff um, back here really quick. Another thing I wanted to say is none of this happens without funding. And you know we can continue to find efficiencies in the budget, but we need to increase revenues. And I know, I, I believe the city polls on a regular basis or maybe once a year, can we have some questions included in your regular poll that test some revenue raising measures, in particular around businesses. I'm hoping one of you might include that in the, in the recommendation or the, the motion that goes forward. The last thing I wanted to say is, it's so important to just reduce the number of calls that are coming in and things like automated speed enforcement and Vision Zero, these are alternatives that make it so that we don't even have a call to direct in a different way. The call just doesn't exist. So please continue to fund Vision Zero and please put a great budget together for the automated speed enforcement. 
Hi, I'm Deb St. Julian, and I live in District 2 now. <laughs> I got re... <laughs> We're flexible. Um, so, I love what Shiloh said, but, and I love what a lot of people said, but I love data. Um, my work life was science-based, and I love better solutions to difficult problems, and I love, I learned this from some people in my life, I love the right tool for the right job. And the 911 report clearly indicates, as your staff concludes, and it was a great report, that, though, that there are tens of thousands of 911 calls that could be more effectively responded to by alternative non-police response teams. And your report, that this report, and all the stories that have been shared today, and those stories, many of those came from Surge's partners, all those stories and the data, wow, what a great confluence, support our partners' asks that the city of San Jose prioritize funding an additional trust truck. We know trust works. Like, how great to have something we know that works. We know this is the right thing to do. Data supports it. Common sense supports it. Our hearts and our compassionate response to these stories support it. And I like what Kim said. You have the power to do this. That's, it's hard being a leader, right? You have responsibility, you have power. So we hope you make the community safe for all because we know that the people that, the stories that come forward, the people that do get hit the hardest by negative encounters are our brothers. Thank you, next speaker. Good afternoon. My name is Sandra Asher. I'm a longtime resident with lived experience with mental health crisis. I'm a member of the Real Coalition Public Safety Work Group, a member of the Reimagining Public Safety Work Group, and a member of the San Jose Trust Community Advisory Board. I'd like you to imagine there's a fire in your house. Who would you like to show up? I bet it's a fireman who has experience fighting fires. Now imagine someone you care about is having a mental health disability or an addiction crisis. Imagine they have other disabilities on top of that. On the worst day of their life, and possibly yours, who would you imagine coming to help them? I bet it would be a mental health professional or a peer who has similar experience, or maybe a medical responder. The 911 report that the staff put together makes clear behavioral health is one of several large categories that police interactions could be diverted to more appropriate responses. Currently, 75% of the calls coming into trust are for San Jose, but we have one team. The West Valley team, it supports Montesorino, Los Gatos, Saratoga. It does not support the high impact zip codes in San Jose that drive the bulk of the calls to trust. The current data shows there are thousands of calls that will be diverted to trust that exceed current capacity. And currently, it can take 30, 40 minutes for a trust team to show up. How would you feel if that was an ambulance? Would that be okay with you? 
So it's common sense that we move this report forward, that we establish a quick timeline to make change in people's lives, and that you support the memo I'm so appreciative of, especially uplifting the support of our Thank you. Back to council. Great, thank you. Thank you to everybody uh, from the public who came out to speak on this issue. We're gonna come back to the council for discussion and a motion, and we will start with Councilmember Ortiz. Thank you, Mayor, and I appreciate you providing the initial direction on this very important um, topic. Um, of course, I wanna thank staff for your work on this um, very important work and, and enlightening report. I agree uh, from the commenter earlier, it was a great, it was a great uh, report with good information. Um, you know, I think to me personally, growing up in East San Jose, I understand that public safety is complex. And I think traditionally we have put all of our eggs in one basket, right? But public safety includes traffic safety, as we heard regarding Vision Zero. Um, it includes, of course, supporting our first responders, our men and women who put their life on the line every day to be out there in, in our districts. Um, but it also could look at exploring um, alternative solutions because we need to have you know, these multiple tools in, in our toolbox. And, I, and as we have these conversations around public safety uh, and the needs of our residents, I think alternative response models need to be an essential part uh, of, this, of this conversation. And it's clear we can do so much more to connect our residents with uh, alternate response programs that exist both at the city and at the county. Uh, as the report said, expanding this, the capacity of programs such as Trust, uh, MCAT, and other programs to meet the needs of San Jose residents will require more dedicated coordination with the county. The report also identified some key opportunities for expansion that other jurisdictions have found success with. That's co-response models to domestic violence calls, alternative response for welfare checks, alternative response models for incidents involving an individual with a disability, and a broader public health approach, uh, of course, to mental health related um, events. I believe it's important that we not let this end as just a report and move forward um, with action. And, and that's why uh, my council colleagues, Councilmember Torres and Jimenez and I believe the most sensible next step uh, is for staff to create a work plan to enhance coordination with the county and explore expansion of alternate and co-response models in areas where they could be most effective in the community. Um, so I do have one initial question. I saw the memo from Councilmember uh, Batra in regards to a, requ a request for uh, a report back to PISFIS. Is staff okay with that? Uh, yes, absolutely, we can do that. Okay, great, good to hear. Um, and then there was another request from, uh, I think, a crowd, uh, Shiloh, um, who had mentioned uh, exploring potential funding mechanisms. Is that something that our staff have uh, explored? So we regularly, whether it's through the quarterly reporting um, focus areas or we've gone out in the past around storm sewer fees or, or anything else that's pertinent, we do test just funding mechanisms in general, trying to point them to some of our more highest and best needs. So we've done that in the past to continue to do that. Um, 
we can definitely add language here. I would just say, as I've said over the past, that it's uh, a very uphill battle around funding mechanisms mm -hmm. for the near future. Okay, no, that, that makes sense, and I do understand. I'm always talking to you about the park bond and yeah. everything else we need funding for. It's, I, I know the need is there, trust yes, me. We, yeah, we definitely do, so we continue to kind of okay. test the waters. I, I would say I just very much do appreciate the, the direction in your, in your memo and as well as Councilmember Batra um, and the flexibility, because I think this report kind of leads us to the conclusion, which is in our findings, what we already mm -hmm. stated, and I think what we've talked about in our focus areas is mm -hmm. we need time with the county, right? Whether it's trust, Hurt, MCAT, or any of the other programs. Mm -hmm. It's really around uh, us as a city understanding what the county behavioral health is doing, what their offerings are doing, um, even of the existing resources in that trust team. Does it need redeployment to more higher need areas? And then how do we help kind of expand 988, which is a brand new service that's been rolling out? Because obviously the need is there and the data has pointed us. So very much appreciate the direction from from the council members who wrote memorandums to give us that space um, and time to work with the county because we do think it's an endeavor that's needed. Great, no, thank, thank you uh, so much, Lee. And I, I just wanna um, be clear, I, I think the city can do both, chew, uh, walk and chew bubble gum. We need to, one, be dedicated to make sure that our um, first responder and, and police force is fully staffed while also acknowledging that you know there are alternative solutions and let's make sure that we are investing in those um, as well. So with that, I'd like to uh, motion both Councilmember Torres Jimenez and my uh, memo, including uh, Councilmember Batras. I don't know who seconded it, but thank you. Great, thanks Councilmember. Yeah, I also wasn't, it sounded like a tie over here. I'll let, I'll let the clerk to break the tie. Okay, thank you Councilmember, appreciate the motion. Let's go to Councilmember Batra. Thank you to all the residents who came and made the point about that it is time for us, the city of San Jose, to evolve our response system to the current needs of the city. Because the society keeps changing, our responses need to be accordingly modernized, changed, alternative response, whatever the term you want to use, it is time to make sure that our response system is appropriate for the type of problems our society is facing. And I believe this report is the type of report we needed to be able to make that decision that what is appropriate the response is. It is great that we showed that we can have cost savings from the police not having to go to this. To me, I don't need that. Because our police force, we know, that is overworked. They have to do so much overtime. And we still do not have them available all the time where we need them. Because the mayor has told you many, many times that the city the size of San Jose is so low in terms of number of police officers we have that even if we take a lot of the work away from them, we still need more officers for providing the safety which you need. So I am all supportive of the fact that we should have alternate response. 
the things which have been defined in this report alternate and corresponds and we don't need to worry about that our police officers would be saving some money from there they got more than enough work in the near future so we don't have to be addressing that issue we need to have the right response for the right reasons to provide our people the safety mental health has been recognized as a big problem you have seen in prop 1 people are asking you for the money to address the mental health whether you agree with that prop or not is same material the only reason i'm quoting is that you're seeing recognition of this problem being seen at different places that's the only purpose we're bringing that i'm not proposing you do one way or the other so i want to make use of this report and i like even when i did the briefing my question was this is such a good report making such good recommendations when do i grab on to it so that the residents can see a change happen as a result of this report and our community is served better that's the reason i wrote the memo to put a timeline on it that we want to get this thing back with the appropriate recommendation for how do we staff it how do we work with the county how do we put additional resources in how much are those resources are and when are we capable of doing this so i totally support this move the council member ortiz you did include my recommendation in the memo okay so i'll be supporting that motion and the memos and i want to see this thing happen yesterday not not next year not a year after so please help us get there the soonest possible okay thank you great thank you councilor councilor torres great thank you and good afternoon uh and thank you for our community for coming out today uh, uh you keep pushing us to do the work and so here we are and also staff for 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 the report for me we know that um i for me domestic violence is really near and dear to my heart and we know that domestic violence calls can be dangerous and that's why i strongly believe we need a coordinated approach our last police officer harmed in the line of duty was because of a domestic violence dispute we saw tragedy in minneapolis where three first responders a police officer a firefighter an emt were killed in a domestic violence dispute at the heart of our approach to addressing domestic violence lies the commitment to collaboration and partnership too much is at stake we recognize that domestic violence calls often originate from concerned neighbors or bystanders highlighting the critical need for a co-coordinated response by working hand in hand with law enforcement partner organizations they stand ready to provide immediate and comprehensive support to victims in crisis as an individual who is lgbtq and who has helped my friends classmates coworkers deal with issues of domestic domestic violence we know that intimate partner violence knows no boundaries and that is why i hope my colleagues pass the memo written by myself councilmember ortiz councilmember jimenez and of course um supporting councilmember batra's uh memo because we need action thank you so much Great. Thank you, Councilor. Councilor Dwan. Thank you, Mayor. 
thank you, staff, and thank you to the San Jose Police Department for your extreme dedication for our community. And I believe that we can use every single tool that we can get uh, by diversifying in order to help our mental illness and substance abuse um, resident out there. I have a few questions for you. How does a dispatcher know how to gear the call towards a PD or is it to a 988 or trust or PERT for that matter? Thank you for the question, council member. So the, the initial triage of any 911 call is, is done by the call taker. And the first thing that the call taker will look at, is there a threat to public safety immediately? If the answer to that is yes, then it's automatically routed for police dispatch, immediate police dispatch. If during the assessment of that call, it's deemed that there's no immediate threat or no immediate need for police to respond, it's more of a resource-based call, then, then it can be transferred to 988. Thank you. Now, let's say there was a PERT co-response out there and it was deemed at first, it was uh, unnecessary for um, a police off officer to be present, but then the escalation. Now, what is the protocol and how long would it take a police officer to arrive on scene? Obviously, um, the nearest uh, police officer would be dispatched to it. Sure, again, thank you. It's a, it's a difficult question to give a straight answer on because there's a lot of variabilities in there. Um, what I would say first and foremost, so, uh, and just for clarification's sake, PERT is a co-responder model, so that is an officer with the clinician, so the officer would, would be there with the clinician immediately. And so in that case, the officer would just call on the radio and request additional assistance. I think the question, I'm guessing the question that you're asking is more related around if there was a, an alternative non-co-responder response like trust. Um, and that really all depends on the circumstances that are, that are happening right there and what's happening right then in the city. If the situation had escalated to where someone's life was in danger right now, um, that would get classified as what we call a priority one call and it would be dispatched via GP our GPS CAD system and they would send the two closest available officers immediately. Thank you. And I'd like to know wh why it's the only operation, especially the per four days out a week, per week, and is that 11 hours per day? Well, uh, th that's the, the plan schedule. We're currently not deploying a PERT model right now. Um, uh, we are waiting for the county to hire uh, a clinician to partner with our officer. Um, and so we only have one team slotted, but it's currently not filled. Uh, thank you, and I definitely will um, support uh, a vote yes uh, from the motion uh, from Councilmember Ortiz, Torres, Jimenez, and uh, Councilmember Batra uh, memo. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Councilmember. Vice Mayor Kamei. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for the report. I tell you, for someone who really likes data, 
I really appreciated all of the information. And I know some of the information had been, you know, uh, sort of a portion, but my hope is that we're uh, in the future gonna be able to uh, have a baseline and continue to track. I always believe that data informs decision-making and we can take a look at um, some of this again. So I don't know if it's in the work plan or whatever, but I would really uh, encourage and urge you to continue that, that data gathering. I too am a little bit sort of, uh, not concerned, but, but I found it uh, interesting that no report required, that was a really huge number. And so I think that digging into uh, some of that might be useful to know, you know, under what circumstances or what have you, because that was 64%. So I just kind of thought that using the information that has been established and yet, you know, kind of like digging deeper will help us in the, you know, next year when we're looking at this. I do know that there are multiple ways of, um, of efforts that have um, been presented here. The current co-response, which I think the PERT needs a little help. Um, and uh, the current alternative response, today we've heard a lot about trust, but we know that the county has other programs as well. I would like to see any of these programs that are appropriate to the situation be applied. I don't know how that works with the county, but uh, it's certainly something that I think is worth uh, exploring. Um, and it seems to me that um, the movement towards getting uh, alternative responses uh, gives us better outcomes. So to me, it's really, really worth the investment, but I also feel that we, we need to continue uh, to in, improve and, and sort of have that continuous improvement loop to be able to get to where we, wa where we wanna be, right? which is having the correct response for the situation that arises. So I wanna thank you so much for the report. You know, we get a lot of reports. This is one of the more outstanding reports. <laughs> but, I, but I also think that uh, we, could, um, we could certainly continue to learn as we move along in trying to solve this very, very big problem that we're seeing that's increasing. So, uh, thank you so much for that, and I, too, will be supporting the motion. Great. Thanks, Vice Mayor. Appreciate that. Councilor Foley? Thank you. This, uh, just to echo my colleagues, that this really is an important report, and thank you to, your, to the staff for your thoughtful presentation, and thank you for the community for weighing in on your support for one particular aspect of this report, the trust, the trust program. This has been a long time in coming. The Reimagine Public Safety and the Real Coalition met and made recommendations what seems like forever ago. And so it's nice to see this report come through and have recommendations come through that, that will then develop into a work plan. Um, but I have a question for you, I guess, Lee. Um, I didn't hear a timeline, and I, I heard you say you wanted the grace to have time to put it together, but I'm feeling a sense of urgency, so I don't want to see this come back in two years. What's a realistic timeline 
that you think you can come back with a thoughtful work plan, including timelines on when this can be, some of these things, recommendations can be implemented. Any? Thank you for the question. Um, I was going to suggest fall. Um, and I say that because I think um, what we're able to put towards this will be telling in our budget process and same with the county. I will say um, in a PISFIS last week and in one of our two meetings that we had last week um, with the county, we were able to go over this. And so one of the things that the county is waiting for us is to do this same presentation with them and starting to dive in on that section of calls and really understand what the most critical need is. So we do expect to do that relatively soon with the county to take part, um, take advantage of, of where they are on their budget cycle, although I know their budget picture is um, tight as well. Um, but I think once we get through that, it was my hope that we would come forward in early fall. That, thank you, that, that's a realistic timeline to me as well, that makes sense given where we are in the budget process and that a lot of these recommendations do require the coordination with the social service programs available through the county. So I, I appreciate that timeline. I'd, I'd love to see it, of course, closer to the beginning of September or fall than closer to the winter time. But I, I understand the timing that is involved. We're in budget process as well. We all know how important public safety is and so, some having the appropriate response to 911 calls is really important, whether it's a sworn officer, a community service officer, a program like Trust, PERT, uh, social workers, civilians, whatever it is, it should be appropriate for, for the situation not putting anyone at risk in, in the response. I want to thank my colleagues for their thoughtful memo, memos and uh, we'll support them and really look forward to this moving forward and seeing a robust work plan that we can finally implement and take some of the work away from the sworn officers so they can focus on uh, fighting crime in a different way and the other things that they need to be doing instead of some of the things they're being asked to do right now. And that doesn't diminish the work they're doing right now. It's we have such limited resources, we just need to use them effectively. And I would be remiss if I didn't uh, echo Shiloh Ballard's comments about Vision Zero, that there are some things we can do to reduce the need for officers in our speed our speed cameras and the technology available there. So we need to fully fund Vision Zero, I'm just gonna say it. Um, and, and with that, I uh, completely support the motion and the memos. Thank you. Great, thank you, Councilmember. appreciate that. Um, I don't see any other hands from the council. I'll just reiterate my thanks. I think it was an uh, excellent report. Appreciate all the comments from colleagues and the motion on the floor. Um, I understand part of the direction will allow us to go have deeper conversations with our counterparts at the county, which I think is a, obviously is the findings in the report show a critical next step. Uh, curious what at this point we know about, and Lee, I don't know if you can speak to this, but as we enter into this budget cycle, the county's intentions around uh, increasing staffing and service levels for 988 for example, I know we're starting to see call volume increase, which is a good thing. We're making sure the community is aware of that resource, which is an alternative. 
uh, alternative response model. I also know that a major barrier for us has been the ability to hire and field clinicians. Last year in the budget message, and again, colleagues supported the, this uh, suggestion that I put forward, we funded a clinician for a PERT team that, as I understand it, is, has uh, remained vacant this year. And I think there are some other key vacancies when we're trying to do this co-response or alternative response model where we're really relying on trained medical professionals. So I know we'll be doing further analysis and conversations, assuming this direction passes, but what's the current status just based on conversations we've had in recent months? Sure, I'll answer that in two parts. Um, and not being at the county, I, I don't know uh, how they're currently going around putting their budget together, but it, at a staff level, it's been communicated to us that this, in addition to the health and hospital system, is one of its priorities through the budget process to really either maintain or add capacity, and obviously they have a, a large projected hole in their budget, um, but it does seem to be a priority for expanding and at least streamlining some of this, and I would say our, our PD comms folks are here and have been working great with the 988 folks to get to those efficiencies, but I would expect hopeful uh, capacity uh, to grow in the near term. And I would say, you know, the um, the PERT team has been a frustration for us. Um, and actually, the, the county's been really open and honest with us. Um, not too different than when we did the focus areas with you across the state and Bay Area. Everyone wants homelessness, behavioral health, and safety addressed. So that, that field that they're trying to hire from has been very difficult. So it's my understanding they've gone out two, if not three times, unsuccessfully. But it is our intent to, to roll that money over and... You know, the PERT team is one of the most intense service level responses, and then trust all the way at the bottom is one of the um, most, um, I'd say, lowest level of intervention. And then there's things in between. So I think having some space to go through the data with the county, too, and figure out, I mean, we made the investment in the PERT team, but is it really the PERT team that we need to be investing in, or should the county be looking at, at other things? So that's the what we'll be doing, kind of understanding the data and making those decisions. Yeah, good. I think that's really important for us to do. I think we're all committed to funding smart, targeted alternative responses and continuing to support our law enforcement officers and the important work they do to keep the community safe. We need both. Um, okay, thank you for that. I don't see any other hands. I think we're ready to vote. Motion passes. Great, thank you all very much. All right, we are on to item 7.1, Education and Digital Literacy Annual Report. We will invite Jill and the team down for presentation, welcome. Good afternoon, uh, Mayor and members of Council. I'm Jill Bourne, City Librarian. Um, I'm here today with my colleagues uh, from the library, from Parks, Recreation, Neighborhood Services, also um, the Office of Economic Development, and we are pleased to be providing you with an update on the highlights of our work in support of education and skill building over the last year. Thank you. So for a bit of background, fastest slide ever. 
In May of 2018, the, the City Council approved the Education and Digital Literacy Strategy as recommended by staff and a wide network of school and community collaborators to ensure that the city's investments in learning and education to our residents would be aligned with intended outcomes and defined educational goals. To divide up the large spectrum of education and learning, the EDL proposed a structure that we still use today, focusing on educational attainment areas, or planks as we call them, each plank reflects major phases or proven milestones in an educational journey. From early education, ensuring that all children are ready to learn by kindergarten, through expanded learning to support grade level attainment, to college and career readiness, which has evolved to pathways for meaningful employment. And digital literacy started as a focus skill building, but in 2020 took on a life of its own with the whole other pandemic related digital inclusion strategy. City Council adopted the first ever uh, education policy in San Jose in February of 2020. The policy acknowledges that the city does not operate our many schools and school districts, but we have a strong commitment to the educational achievement of our students as indicators of future individual, family, and community success. The EDL strategy proposed an approach that emphasized the principles of equity, opportunity, quality and accountability to our residents. Using tools such as the equity index, which is shown here just as an example, staff is able to use geolocated demographic data and program information to focus program opportunities and access where most needed. To ensure quality, program quality standards were developed by cross-sector teams of experts in each program plank area with logic models and assessment tools. Finally, other key components of the strategy is reporting on program outcomes with the goal of understanding impact for residents and areas for future growth and how best to direct the city's finite resources. There we go. Um, and now a moment on the quality improvement process. Very simply, a robust set of principles is developed that address all aspects of program quality, from social, emotional, to learning and academics. Each set of standards is adopted by City Council, then implementation begins with an initial assessment of each individual program and the development of improvement plans. As participants interact with the program, their experiences also become part of program evaluation and reporting. And as a process, we use program evaluation and program assessments to make changes to programs, to adapt to needs, continue to assess, improve, evaluate, and on, a, and on in a continuous cycle. <clears throat> on January 18th, 2024, staff presented an annual update to the Neighborhood Services and Education Committee. We were very appreciative of the interest and detailed questions. That discussion did illustrate to us the need to provide specific updates about some of the key um, education digital literacy programs, which I hope we can accomplish today. First of all, it may be assumed at this point. Did I skip a slide? Sorry. There it is. Sorry, we're going too fast. I'm gonna just keep talking. I know. 
It may be assumed, but I wanted to explicitly call out the fact that we have vast and deep levels of partnership, not only across city departments, but also with local community-based organizations, schools and districts, business and philanthropic supporters, consultants and other educational providers. Partnership is a fundamental aspect of this work, building communities of practice and collective impact with intentionality towards shared goals. We could actually fill another couple of slides with all the school districts, individual schools, and other organizations with whom we are partnering. I think the slides got screwed up, so. Yeah. It's going forward. Can you go back to one more? There we go, they just got switched. So um, we wanted to clarify by the planks. Um, in your packet from Neighborhood Services and Education Committee, it includes about 70 pages of detailed information about programs. But to help clarify, this, this slide shows the quality status per plank. You'll see that the City Council adoption of formal quality standards frameworks for each plank occurred in 2019 and, excuse me, 2020. Quality standard implementation processes are now underway with 17 of 19 early education programs, 9 of 10 expanded learning programs, and 12 of the 26 College Pathways programs citywide. Most programs are currently ranging from at standard to proficient or advanced. Programs that are emerging are typically new to the process. And I'm gonna walk through more in a minute. Program assessment and evaluation is completed through a variety of methods, including formal studies, participant surveys, and school data sharing. Okay, so now for a speed round, we're gonna highlight some of the um, key programs in each education plank area. In early education, I'm really glad that I'm talking because I get to toot the horn of PRNS who undertook a transformation of the traditional recreation preschool program. Although license exempt, this program began a rigorous process of introducing quality standards, completing assessments in 2022 and 2023, and achieving a current rating of at standard on the way to proficient. Child learning and environmental assessments are conducted throughout the program and delayed data collected includes zip code and student demographic information. The classic library early literacy program known as Storytime has also evolved into nine modes such as four that are stage specific, bilingual in several languages, inclusive for developmental differences, family programs, and music and movement. I also wanted to call out a special series called Read to Succeed, story times that were presented in partnership with our very own San Jose Police Department. Yes, Chief Mata and his team read stories. Uh, story time programs are largely assessed through caregiver surveys and many aspects of the program and their influence on their young attendees. Camp San Jose Junior is an expansion of the classic Camp San Jose that staff developed to meet community need for summer care, specifically for younger residents. Here, our littlest residents are introduced to fun and creative activities and socialization. This is an example of a program that is entering the quality improvement cycle because staff recognizes its importance as a school readiness experience. 
Moving on to expanded learning plank, San Jose Learns is a program that expands the school day with high dosage learning support on school sites for primary grades. It is an example of a program that features a high degree of formal external evaluation and clear reporting on academic outcomes through data sharing agreements with participating schools. San Jose Tutoring Matters is a new pilot expansion program to provide one-on-one -on -one tutoring to students grades six to 12. Similar to SJ Learns, an external evaluation will be conducted and the program is projected to grow to this year to reach 1,500 students. Twenty-seven Rock and One ACES programs are two hallmarks of the PRNS programs that support working families during the school year. These programs are assessed according to a robust observation tool with 52 metrics aligned to the California Quality Standards for Expanded Learning programs. Moving to the College and Career Plank Pathways Plank, the Career Online High School continued through the pandemic as an online path to a fully accredited high school diploma. With 174 graduates to date, San Jose's 73% graduation rate is the highest in the state. Graduates also receive a career certificate in fields such as office management, commercial driving, childcare, and others. The Family Friend and Neighbor Caregiver Support Network provided more than 3,300 professional development hours and many related supports to caregivers known as FFNs, which also influences the quality of early learning experiences for the young children in their care. The program is assessed by a quality standards tool as well as participant reporting through surveys and completion of coursework and certifications. And next, the Resilience Core Learning Pathway participants have received a living wage for 59,000 collective hours worked at six host organizations, assisting 6,500 school children with learning recovery support. Of those completing the program, many returned to college, and 39% received post-program employment at the end of their last um, academic year session. San Jose Works also operated at an advanced quality level, reporting significant participant workforce skill development and an impressive 94% summer intern program completion rate. And now a more recent development in the College and Career Plank was the direction from Neighborhood Services and Education Committee to expand this plank to include citywide services uh, with a goal of maximizing all city programs towards meaningful employment. This year, Human Resources, the Fire Department, Housing, and Public Works are all joining the library and PRNS in this work. And finally, the, in digital literacy, the Coding 5K computer science program started as coding programs and is evolving to meet new and future technology learning needs of our local students. In addition to quality assessment, data is gathered largely from participant surveys and demographic information. And our SJ Access program, Council is very familiar with, which provides access to facilitate learning, working in close partnership with schools and collecting data through user surveys, unique uses, and census data. Okay, so now each of these programs could probably and does fill a whole report, and each with specific findings regarding quality, growth plans, as well as a wealth of other data points. 
with all of the data collected, staff are working on a dashboard for capturing and visualizing program impacts at the neighborhood, district, and city level. So um, one simple data point collected across all programs, actually two simple data points were participation or attendance in programs and the location, zip code, or census tract of the program. This visualization shows a density map of program access and attendance citywide in the programs that are listed to the left. Um, if, it's a, if you had it live, you can actually toggle the different programs and see, but what's interesting is this is purely as an example. Um, it does show the density of programs and attendance um, across our city. And um, we're, as I said, we're working on building out more of the data dashboard and concise reporting for each of the programs. But what is also exciting for us at this point in the program, having um, implemented so much of the quality standards and um, done data collection, is that the education strategy directly aligns with broader efforts to build out a comprehensive plan, which would include um, which would address needs beyond education, which would use these programs as entry points into pathways that connect to other systems of support, facilitate residents through systems to ensure a seamless experience, to further link educational outcome data to related goals for employment, wellness, and safety, and to align the city and county with other partners, and overall to expand our collective impact even further. So the next steps for the education digital literacy work is um, continuous quality improvement process, completing the development of the reporting dashboard for existing education programs, as well as um, the next phase of our college and career pathways project, which um, includes significant direct youth leadership and continuing to participate and align with the development of a children and youth services master plan. So before I conclude, I wanted to just address a couple, well, one additional question from the Neighborhood Services and Education Committee that I couldn't fit into the presentation. So um, while some programs can expand capacity by leveraging existing resources, there are a few notably that always experience wait lists or demand that exceed the current resources. And I believe uh, Councilmember Ortiz asked us this question. So one is SJ Learns always has more schools applying for it than the city can match. So that's a matching grant program and we have schools that really wanna work with us on that. Rock and ACES and Camp, Jose, Camp San Jose programs consistently have wait lists and um, they were able to fill a gap in scholarships last year through one-time funds, which um, are not uh, you know, currently budgeted for the next year, so that's a concern. The SJ Works program consistently has two to 300 youth on a wait list for the subsidized program. And the Family, Friend, and Neighbor program currently has an 80 caregiver wait list for that program. So those were four that, um, that answer your question. So thank you all for the time today. And uh, the whole team is here to answer any questions you have. Great. Thank you for that very comprehensive overview of all the incredible programming our library and other departments and partners are putting on here in our city. Uh, let's go to public comment first. We have one. Dawn, please go ahead and make your way to the podium. Thank 
Good afternoon, Mayor and Council Members. Um, I just want to amplify the great work that you've already heard from Jill. When this council um, body approved the education and digital literacy strategy in 2018, you really set something in motion that is seen by our peers across the nation as something remarkable and incredible. And it, you're seeing the results come through now. The work that you started isn't a quick thing. It's gonna take time to do, and as you see, there are a lot of programs that have started the assessments that will continue to do them and refine and revise and improve, and that kind of work will continue, and your continued investment in that is what's going to help make the whole city rise up. I do want to just mention that um, there are a growing number of us peer organizations who support public libraries across the nation, who we gather together. Um, next meeting is in June in DC. And this program, specifically the EDL, is something that has got so much attractive attention from our peers, whether it's Chicago or Seattle or DC or Pensacola. Um, they are looking to us, to San Jose, to be able to do some of the things that they can then take back to their own cities. So, as much as you're investing in helping rise up all of San Jose residents, please know that the good work here is going to be seen and is going to be replicated elsewhere as well. Thank you. Back to council. Great, thank you very much. Okay, let's go to Councilor Torres first. Great, uh, thank you so much uh, for your presentation and uh, you know, thank you so much for, for taking our input at uh, NSC. So these committees are, are extremely important. Uh, so thank you so much for breaking down zip codes in many of these reports. But I also wanna thank our, our library staff for the important literacy programs that we have in our libraries. I think it's, you know, I. I grew up in a neighborhood where we didn't have a library, and we finally did, and it was a you know, game changer for the neighborhood. Um, I do have a couple questions, and I have a chicken scratch, so sorry if, uh, if I can't find my question, but another comment that I did have is um, I'm, very, I'm really glad to know that we are, we are actually creating a career pipeline, not only for our own city, because we all know that folks who uh, did the resiliency program are now working for our city, or San Jose Works are now working for our city, so we're creating a, a real solid uh, career pipeline, right? I, I believe that it's our moral responsibility to create that, that we need to create a cradle to career, to career pipeline here in the city of San Jose, especially for our most at-risk youth in our most at-risk zip codes. And so the, the, the question I, I did have, and I found it, is um, we, we are very thankful that uh, Coding 5K is a, a program within itself, right? So I, I'm glad that there's funding for years for that through, uh, I believe, a private donation? Yes, it's mostly philanthropic, uh, leveraging our existing city staff. Okay, awesome. So with that, how, because I noticed that a lot of folks in the zip codes that I represent and Councilmember Ortiz represents and Councilmember Duan represents and even parts of Councilmember Candelas represents, uh, they, we still don't have participation, enough participation from those 
from the youth in, in, that, in those districts or those zip codes, I should say. And so how can we, how can we uh, tie this program with either San Jose Yeah or our School City Collaborative? Thank you for the question, Council Member. Um, I think that uh, as you articulated, Coding 5K really was our first big coding initiative um, and computer science initiative that we started pre-pandemic. And so now it really is a time for reframing that and looking at partners who are doing similar work, but also looking at our, um, our school partners now that the schools are implementing a, uh, a common core curriculum around computer science and um, our Office of Education is, is also involved in that. The, the School City Collaborative you know, has already articulated that digital inclusion or digital literacy is a priority and has been for several years. As we develop our work plan for this year, that um, working together to revise our Coding 5K program in alignment with what the schools need could actually be a work plan item for the School City Collaborative. Yeah, great, and I, th I think it's it, I think it's extremely important that when we talk about again when we talk about prevention, uh, right? San Jose, yeah, is is that program to do so, and so we we need to continue to make sure that we're wor working with our school districts. I actually I didn't see I know that there was a lot of logos, but I scanned them really quickly. I didn't see San Jose Unified. I'm hoping as an alum for San Jose Unified, I'm hoping they're on there. Yeah, that's why I okay. tried to make a comment that we could probably have had two more slides oh, okay. full <laughs> of every school district. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. And every school. Great. Um, and uh, again, I think that we, we just need to tighten it up and, and work, make sure that we're working with, with San Jose, yeah, especially as we know that we, you know, a lot of us represent uh, our council districts where we're seeing an increase in gang participation or gang uh, involvement uh, and so that's the prevention part right but not only that right we continue to hear that you know Google's gonna come in and that high-tech is not gonna leave Silicon Valley and our our engineers need to look like our community as well so uh, with that I move to approve 7.1 great second from the vice mayor councilor Batra Thank you for that detailed report. I just got one question is, <clears throat> is any of our programs include playing with the musical instruments or providing them any musical opportunities? Because I see there's a lot of emphasis on cultural enrichment. And I've been asked in the community, hey, is there a library equivalent of music library? Okay. <laughs> okay. So I don't know what it is going to look like, but I'm working with some of the community members to figure out a musical library equivalent of the books library, okay? So is there any component here? Yes, yeah, so I'll just uh, start answering the question by uh, pointing out that our, one of our story time types is actually called music and movement and it embeds music in the process of pre-literacy and enjoying story time shared together. And I'll hand it over to Hal Spangenberg from PRNS to discuss some of the other programs. Thank you. Uh, Hal Spangenberg, Division Manager for PRNS. Um, 
Our department uh, does contract out with a variety of vendors uh, to offer what we call leisure classes, and we do have a category of music along with dance, arts, uh, but we do have guitar lessons, piano lessons, and music classes that we offer throughout uh, our community and our community centers. Leisure classes are typically offered in sessions, so depending on the season, it can be a, between a six to eight to 10 week class. All right, I'd like to get together with you to get more details and be able to work on giving it a, probably a little deeper shape to it uh, because I do have some enthusiasts who want to see this more of uh, in the city of San Jose. And uh, RBF obviously supporting the motion. Uh, great work and uh, continue moving in the direction you're moving. Thank you. Thanks, Councilmember. Vice Mayor Kameh. It's not going to work. Oh, now it works. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you so much to the library staff, but also to the PRNS staff that really worked so hard day in and day out to bring these programs uh, to our community. And uh, every year, you know, it gets better and better and better, and people want to more and more and more. So I do know that they're very popular. I do know that um, there's a tremendous need for it. Uh, and I just wanted to recognize your work because, you know, it's um, sometimes a little bit complex. And I know that you're always trying to leverage those limited dollars. And, uh, you know, I think um, we need to say, you know, more than just good job. This is great. This is really great. So continue the good work. And again, thank you so much. Thanks, Vice Mayor, and I'll echo that thanks, all that gratitude for all the great work you all do serving our community, uh, particularly our children, young people who are looking for opportunity. Uh, I had a couple quick questions. One is, uh, you know, I heard just in January, FCC is, is planning to wind down the Affordable Connectivity Plan. I know we've done a lot of work to connect folks to broadband. We've, as I understand it, uh, your report indicated we've signed up just over half of eligible households for that program. With that going away, what, is, what does that mean for families who we need to get connected to broadband? Yeah, thank you for that question. So we're working closely with our telecommunications partners to understand what other options are available um, so that we can prepare a report out and we would love to work with all your offices to make sure to share that information. Um, but also, there is still work being done by the um, FCC and others to identify a replacement program for the ACP. So we're all kind of watching that there, there could be a significant gap of time between the time when the ACP winds down, which is next month, and the, you know, the time when they're able to stand up a new program. So we're tracking the, the, the policy making and the opportunities and we're gonna be coming forward with a number of options hopefully to provide to our community. Um, and, and also options for what, what would it look like if the city was to support some of that. Um, currently we, as I, no as I noted on the slides, the city funds a collection of hotspots that are circulated through the libraries. We started that process during the pandemic and always knew that it is not a long-term solution. Perhaps there is a better way to direct, you know, that those uh, resources to something that might be more sustainable. And that's that's one of all the things that we're looking at right now. Great, and sorry I missed it. What did you say the timing was? 
Sorry? When did you say the timing was it's for coming back? It's supposed to wind down next month in March. Sorry, I meant your, your evaluation oh. of kind of our forward-looking strategy. We're when would that come back to council? Yeah, oh, so we, we haven't uh, calendared anything at council. We were going to prepare um, some opportunities to review for our city manager and then possibly briefings for the council and the mayor. Okay, sounds good. Thanks for investigating that. I was concerned to hear about that program going away. Um, I think you highlighted this as well. I'm, I'm very interested in the high dosage tutoring and what we're learning and the scalability of that. Uh, Councilmember Ortiz and I just heard at the um, Youth Empowerment Alliance last week about our at-risk youth who, as we all know, particularly on our east side, where I used to be a public school teacher, we already have a lot of young people who are a year or two behind grade level. Then with the pandemic and remote learning, which did not work equally well for everyone, we then added another year or two to which students were behind. So now we have some real challenges with kids who no longer believe in their ability to achieve in the classroom, and so they're going off and finding other ways to try to find belonging and find income because they're just hope they feel hopelessly behind. So it, it seems to me that a critical question for us to ask ourselves as a community in this moment is what we can do to intervene. Coming, I mean, we're on the other side of this pandemic. We have a lot of kids who are further behind than they've ever been. And so, I, you know, I'm hoping that this is a scalable program that, that can close that gap, but it didn't look like we had data from last year. So what's the, when do we get a better analysis? Um, I believe the analysis is expected this spring, 2024, so that's okay. good. I can check on the exact timing. It was an analysis of a pilot program um, with 111 students. Those same um, organizations put in proposals for a year, for a one full year, which is an expansion to 1,500 students at those locations. So I think what we, what we could do and should do is look at ways to connect the youth in the Youth Empowerment Alliance to see if there are opportunities for, um, for this type of program. Um, we know from our data of our SJ Learns program that it is, it's been highly successful when targeted to learning at grade level in reading and mathematics, which is a major indicator for third grade students, right? right. This is the first time we're doing ages six to 12, but they are, uh, it is one-on-one -on -one tutoring. The, the organizations that were selected are all experienced and well-known in the space. So, I mean, I think we have a reason to believe that there will be good outcomes, um, but we, so we could do an immediate connection for some students, and then we could look at the results when the um, first pilot assessment comes back and look at further scaling. One of the things we also wanna look at is that we, we had only three organizations apply for the grants. And so we wanna, even though, you know, we do make it available to all of our districts, we have many, you know, we have seven current districts involved in SJ Learns. I think this was just a new model and so maybe we'll, we'll do some learning by talking with partners and schools about how, um, how we might tweak it to make uh, it available to more people and more organizations. Yeah, that sounds great. I'd be really interested to learn more about that. And that actually segues perfectly to my last comment, which is likely to be a very unpopular comment. Uh, I, I think as we look at the range of programs, each of which are, um, seem like amazing programs, I think we need to really think about scale. 
I'll be, as much as I'm in love with the idea of targeted high dosage tutoring, helping kids get on grade level and build confidence and be successful, if that program can only operate on the scale of 100 kids, it may not with all the overhead costs, with the opportunity cost, it may not be the right business for the city to be in. If we can do that on the scale of thousands of students, maybe it is. And I think we need, to, we need to just keep in the back of our heads as we come back around for another cycle of evaluation on all these programs, we need to ask ourselves in a city of a million people with the level of need that's out there, how many lives we're able to touch. And I, and I don't want to devalue the power of a program that helps one kid, but I also think we have limited resources. There's the overhead and bandwidth for city staff. There's all those costs that uh, end up being tax dollars flowing to us managing things here versus direct impact out in the field. And so I just want to constantly encourage us to be thinking about scalable models and how do we get to that order of magnitude of helping thousands of people uh, rather than spreading ourselves across what could be dozens of programs, helping very small numbers with very high overhead costs. I, just, I think we also have to think about how to maximize the impact we're having for a community where there's a lot of need. It's the same point I've made on homelessness. Uh, you know, we've got some great solutions for the lucky few, but as long as we've got 4,000 people living in tents, we've got to think about scale. So I just, I'll just make that point here as well. Not, again, to devalue any of the incredible work here. I think every one of these programs is very well conceived, clearly well managed. I've had the opportunity to come out to a number of them and witness uh, the power, but uh, I think we have to keep pushing ourselves to think about scale and focus to maximize our impact. Okay, uh, great questions, comments from colleagues. Thank you again for the report. I don't see any other hands, so let's vote. Mayor, we need a seconder of the motion, and she stepped out. Oh, we can't vote without the seconder of the motion? Is that a rule? We've got a parliamentarian here to Councilor Foley, is that true? All right, here we go. Vice Mayor's back. Okay. All right, thank you all very much. We are on to our last agendized item here, 7.2, Raging Waters Lease Agreement. This is exciting. We have a staff presentation. Good afternoon, Mayor and City Council, John Cicerelli, Director of Parks, Recreation, and Neighborhood Services. I'm glad you saved the best for last today. Um, this is a great new story. Um, you know, at the end of last summer, we were all surprised by the news that our operator at Raging Waters was leaving town. Um, we were very worried that we would not be able to operate this summer. And so before you today is our best effort to make sure that we do operate this summer. Um, and then also talk a bit about the future. To my left, Avi Otam, Deputy Director of the Parks Division. To his left, Shannon Heimer, our Division Manager in the Parks Division. And to her left, Dominic Pacolba, also uh, a Park Manager in the Parks Division. Um, together, we've worked over the last few months uh, to uh, secure a provider. Uh, representatives of their organization are here in the audience today from California Dreaming. I believe they'll make some statements under public comment, uh, but also will be available if you had specific questions for them uh, that we might not be able to answer ourselves. So we're going to walk through the details of that um, in a PowerPoint, but before we do that, I do want to give a special thank you to Shannon and Dominique, who've really done the heavy lifting here, 
This was a big problem that landed in our lap completely unexpectedly, uh, and they had to drop a lot of other things to make this happen, and we were very proud to be able to be here today and give this, this option to you as a city council. So with that, we'll start the presentation. Thank you, John. Good afternoon, Mayor and City Council members. I'm Avi Otam, Deputy Director of Parks. Raging Waters is a city-owned water park located at Lake Cunningham in East San Jose with 14 water rides, cabanas, concessions, gift shop, and amphitheater event space. It opened in 1985 as the largest water park in Northern California with a 20-year lease that was amended and restated several times over the next two decades and extended into a 40-year lease scheduled to expire in March 2025 when the park added significant capital improvements like the wave pool and pirate ship play structure. Like many others who grew up in, San Jose, in and around San Jose, I spent many days in my childhood at Raging Waters for school trips, Cub Scout trips, birthday parties, and fun with friends and family. We didn't mind the trip from out of town into Lake Cunningham because Raging Waters was a destination that we all looked forward to visiting. It was part of growing up here. True story. I also learned the value of sunscreen at Raging Waters, a lesson I will never forget, and I have the freckles to prove it. Now, as staff, the connection to the park has taken on a professional lens. As John said, we, we staff were disappointed to learn on September 5th that the prior operator, Palace Entertainment, intended to terminate its lease on September 30th, 18 months early. By doing that, Palace Entertainment breached its agreement with the city, and we have since communicated with Palace Entertainment about its obligations, including site conditions that need to be addressed. Even before that, in anticipation of the end of the 40-year lease, we had already begun working on the RFP for the future of Raging Waters. When the prior operator left, we pivoted to find a short-term solution to ensure the city's assets would be secured and maintained, and Dominic will explain what we did. Hello, Mayor and Council. Thank you so much for having me today. My name is Dominique Pacolba. I'm the Parks Manager with the Destination Events and Sports Unit team. Um, and I oversee the Raging Waters lease, um, the lease for the city golf courses, and Evangelutions lease at Emma Proust Farm Park, among other programs and staff. Um, under the terms of the current contract, the city manager has the authority to reassign the remaining lease. The city ha can assign the lease agreement to an organization that meets required qualifications. Six companies expressed interest in opening, or I'm sorry, operating Raging Waters in the weeks after the closure announcement, so staff implemented a structured process to select an assignee from these interested parties within an abbreviated timeline so the park could reopen this summer. Five organizations submitted their qualifications, and we determined that four of the five submissions demonstrated meeting required qualifications. Staff invited companies meeting required qualifications to a tour of the facility and submit proposals for a reopening. Three of them submitted proposals, however, one was only interested in the long-term lease. The final two were interviewed and staff selected California Dream and Entertainment Incorporated for the lease assignment. The staff of California Dream and Entertainment Incorporated have over 40 years of experience in the industry. They are currently redeveloping the former Raging Waters in Sacramento. Additionally, the team has worked with Disney, Universal Studios, SeaWorld, Knott's Berry Farm, and the Raging Waters Los Angeles in San Dimas. Their proposal for a reopening in summer of 2024 includes temporary structures, food trucks, partners like Chuck E. Cheese, a wine garden addition, and an increased rent of 6% of sales. Pending, um, now I'll talk a little bit about the lease amendment terms. 
pending approval today, staff and assignee will finalize and execute an assignment and assumption agreement of the Palace Entertainment lease with the same terms and conditions. However, based on the assignee's proposal, we are recommending that we amend the agreement and extend the term for six months so the 2025 summer is included and add an option at the city's sole discretion to extend for another six months until March of 2026. Additionally, rent payments to the city would be 6% of gross receipts as proposed by California Dreamin, up from 5.5% current. Lastly, if California Dreamin is not selected for the long-term RFP, they would be reimbursed for up to 3,450,000 for startup costs and needed for capital repairs with expenses subject to city staff approval. The future RFP for long-term operations will include a requirement for the selected operator to reimburse the assignee up to $3,450,000 from the selected operator's own funds if California Dreamin' is not selected. I will now pass it to Shannon to talk about the process to identify a long-term operator for Raging Waters. Thank you. Thanks, Dominique. Good afternoon, Mayor and City Council. I'm Shannon Heimer, Division Manager over Parks Destination Events and Sports, including Happy Hollow Park and Zoo, Emma Proosh Farm Park, Family Camp, Placemaking, Park Rangers, and our sports field reservations and facilities. Since March 2023, we have been researching and planning for the long-term request for proposal, or RFP, to address the lease at Raging Waters and to look, for, look at recreational opportunities at Lake Cunningham Regional Park. A facility like Raging Waters is not often available for bidding, and with Great America slated to close within a decade, we are approaching a generational opportunity to revitalize the city's water park and consider potential expansion of Raging Waters or the leased grounds to include the marina, lake, undeveloped areas, and even potentially the Action Sports Park. To include the Action Sports Park, PRNS would need to complete a business case analysis in accordance with Council Policy 0-41 on service delivery evaluation because the facility has more than four FTE that might be affected if there are service delivery changes. And the decision to pursue changes would be presented for the City Council's approval prior to including the Action Sports Park in the RFP. The RFP we have begun drafting is centered on the guiding principles of Activate SJ, the 20-year strategic plan for PRNS, stewardship, nature, equity and access, identity, and public life. The RFP is looking for a long-term operator for Raging Waters and potentially other areas of Lake Cunningham Regional Park, providing increased revenue to the city without additional operating cost. A long-term lease should include significant capital investment in Raging Waters and potentially other areas of Lake Cunningham, as interested parties have already expressed a willingness to invest 20 million or more in a long-term deal. The RFP will seek a contribution towards solving the lake water quality challenge, working towards creating a future for lake sports, which could even be part of the operation of Raging Waters. Finally, the long-term RFP would strive for providing the community high-quality, safe, and affordable experiences that would encourage socialization and engagement and would reestablish Lake Cunningham as a destination that draws San Jose residents and visitors alike while raising, identity and raising the identity and profile of East San Jose. The RFP is scheduled to be released by late spring 2024 and evaluated through the summer. Staff expects to return to the City Council in late 2024 or early 2025 to award the RFP 
and transition to a new operator in 2025 after negotiating and executing lease agreements. Before we close, I want to take a moment to thank our colleagues in the City Manager's Office of Economic Development and Cultural Affairs, City Attorney's Office, and Finance Department who have supported efforts for this lease assignment and been thought partners for the RFP's development, including Thomas Harris, Kevin Ice, Andrew Malik, Cameron Day, Johnny Fan, Miguel Bernal, Vicki Davis, and Albi Udon. With that, we recommend adopting a resolution authorizing the city manager or her designee to negotiate and execute an assignment and an amendment of the ground lease as stated in the memo and provide feedback on the guiding principles of the RFP staff is developing. And now we are available for questions and feedback. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. You know, John said it. I, I just really want to reiterate the gratitude for the speed at which you all pivoted to meet this community need. We are not exactly known for our uh, agility and speed in government, but the fact that after, you know, council uh, was, was made aware of Palace backing out and we all were concerned, you guys just jumped in and figured out how to make it happen. So we're really, really grateful. I'm sure my colleagues will echo those sentiments. Um, and to, obviously to your point, I think it, most of us who grew up in the region have fond memories of going to Raging Waters as a kid. My life lesson was don't linger at the bottom of the big slide or you will, you will get crushed. Um, okay, so we're gonna come back for uh, council discussion. Do we have any public comment? We have four speaker cards. As I call your right. name, please go ahead and make your way to the podium. Stephen, Thomas, Leslie, and Jordan. Good afternoon, my name is Steve Dooner. I'm the CEO of California Dream Entertainment. Standing behind me is Thomas Lochtefeld, the guy who originally designed and built Raging Waters 40 years ago. Tom and I have known each other more years than either one of us will admit, and uh, we've worked together on Raging Waters parks elsewhere in California. When I was made aware that the park had been closed, I immediately contacted Dominique and said, look, we've done the same thing in Sacramento. What can we do here? And Tom and I decided to lock hips and come into this together to not only reopen the park, but hopefully on a long-term basis, make it a real destination for the whole valley. So thank you for your time. I'm grateful to be here. Looking forward to working with you in the next two years and hopefully 20 or 30 more. Thank you. My name is Thomas Lochtefeld. I was the original lessee that uh, developed Raging Waters. So to me, this is a real homecoming, and I want to thank the city to begin with to actually have given me the opportunity over 40 years ago to come and develop this park, because it was my first, and then I went on to develop you know, five other parks that I operated throughout the world and sold hundreds of attractions that I've also developed. But 
I really want to let you know there's a magnificent opportunity with Lake Cunningham as a regional park. And not only that it's regional, we can make it a destination for worldwide, you know, call it recreational opportunity for families, kids, and what I envision is, is sporting elements, which, you know, is, is a real driver for health and, and well-being for the community. So I look forward very much to uh, come back and bring this to life. Thank you. Hi, Jordan Moldau, District 3. Um, I'm supportive of this project, and I'm supportive of the uh, memorandum put forward by Councilmember Candelas and Ortiz. Um, their memo talks about employment access for the local community and financial access for the local community. Um, and I also wanted to talk about physical access for the local community. Um, you know, the people who are visiting Lake Cunningham or the local community members who will eventually be employed at Raging Waters might want to get there by walking or by biking or scooter or whatever. Um, and right now I'd say it's not super easy to get there. Um, you know, it's surrounded by Capital, Expressway, and Tully, which have a lot of cars on them, not super safe. Um, so I'd encourage, um, you know, the new leaseholder and the city staff to think about physical access while we're revitalizing the, the two parks. Um, I think there's, from the official map of the lake, it looks like there's a single pedestrian entrance at the corner of White and Cunningham Ave. Um, but it's a huge park. It seems like you could put many more pedestrian entrances with uh, bridges over the river so that pedestrians could access them from multiple sides. Um, the two driveway entrances to the park right now do not have sidewalks. The sidewalks just end as the driveway starts. So maybe also think about rebuilding the sidewalk into the park. Um, also, if you want to walk around the entire lake, when you get to Raging Waters, you kind of have to walk through the parking lot. Um, so maybe the new uh, people running Lake Cunningham can think about building some sort of pedestrian walkway that connects the whole circumference of the lake. Thank you. Surrender. Hi, everyone. Uh, years ago, I used to work at India Motorcycle um, for the CFO, and he told me a story about a young girl that was gang raped at Raging Waters. <clears throat> um, as you know, I see all children as my own children, so please make sure that safety is a priority for all of them. I know everyone loves to have fun, um, but around fun, things happen. And so that's all I ask. Thank you. Back to council. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm gonna turn to my colleague, Councilor Candelas, who I know was as, as or more relieved than any of us that we're able to salvage this summer at Raging Waters, council member. Thank you. Um, I, I wanna start off by thanking PRNS staff. I know that when the, the, first, the news first broke um, about the previous operator leaving abruptly, uh, we had several conversations. Um, and you understood my urgency with regards to finding an operator to assume operations uh, by, by this summer, uh, but not for me. 
for, but for our families in East San Jose and beyond. And um, uh, for that, I'm, I'm truly appreciative um, and, and for your commitment for, for our community. Uh, Raging Waters is a regional landmark and we all recognize that. Uh, today is important for our city because of our efforts in finding a new operator. But it's not just about securing an operator, it's about safeguarding a beloved community asset uh, and ensuring it continues for generations to come. Um, you know, over the, the last few months, I've heard from many residents about the park, and a lot of them uh, wrote emails. Um, uh, they were a little sad that they couldn't come in person, uh, but alas, that's a topic for a different day. Um, today, we've breathed new, new life into this destination, and hopefully in the, new, in the near future, unlock its full potential. Uh, beyond providing a source of recreation for our community, the park uh, serves as a catalyst uh, for economic growth, uh, attracting visitors to the area, supporting our small businesses, and generating revenue for our city. Um, it also serves as a hub for bringing families together, uh, friends, neighbors, where we have an opportunity to create lasting memories, right, Avi? Or as the mayor mentioned, um, and, and it's, it's a, it creates a sense of belonging. Councilmember Ortiz and I drafted a, a memorandum that does a few things. Uh, one, it strengthens our agreement um, and ensures that we are protecting the city by reducing the risk, um, for whatever reason, of a breach of, of agreement, a breach of contract. Um, and second, it makes it makes sure that Raging Waters is part of the RFP process for how we're reimagining, um, provides local jobs for our students um, and our and our folks immediately adjacent to Raging Waters and Lake Cunningham, because I, I, we all know how important that is. Um, I, I want to thank the, the PRNS staff and the city attorney for helping us with that memo and, and helping us um, craft, craft something that's, that's reasonable that could potentially be implemented as part of the, uh, part of the RFP process. Um, I am excited to see the results of that process. We all know how important improving the water quality uh, means not just to me, um, but to our, to our neighborhoods, and I look forward to tapping the potential of the private sector um, uh, as part of this uh, to help accelerate the problem and in, in a, a potential private-public partnership, a P3, if you will, um, in, in activating the marina, the skate park, and other amenities we have at Lake Cunningham. Um, thank you, lastly, to California Dreamin' for stepping up and, uh, and filling that, that, that gap. I look forward to attending Raging Waters with my nephews this summer. Um, uh, with that, uh, I'd like to move the memorandum drafted by Councilmember Ortiz and myself. Second. Great. Thank you. I'll be supporting the memo. Councilmember Ortiz. Thank you, uh, Mayor. I want to start my comments by sharing my thanks with um, our staff at PRNS who worked diligently as soon as we learned that the current operator, Palace Entertainment, no longer had intention to continue operating the park. I appreciate the quick mobilization by staff to ensure that there's no lapse in enjoyment for our families, especially those of East San Jose who rely on the water park for summertime entertainment. Raging Waters is a cherished place for many residents, including myself, of course. For generations, it's been a hub of fun and learning, where residents held their first jobs, uh, folks learned how to swim, schools enjoyed their end-of-the-year field trips, Families have made unforget unforgettable memories, and if you're anything like two of my staff members, you may have almost drowned in the wave pool. But uh, it's no wonder why the, the water park holds such a special place in the hearts of so many people, and it's fiercely guarded by residents of East San Jose. To that end, I hope that both me and Councilmember Candelas can count on our colleagues' support 
to strengthen the bond between the water park and our community. Our joint memo aims to achieve this through local hire, as well as providing affordable access to residents who otherwise lack the opportunity to enjoy the amenity. And finally, it moves to protect the city's finances, ensuring that our pockets aren't hurt if the new operator decides to pull their contractual obligation, which I understand that's not the intent. But before I end my comments, let me add my thanks to the leadership of Councilmember Candelas and uh, both our PRNS capital team and IGR team who worked to secure 1.5 million in last year's budget cycle that will go towards the restoration of Lake Cunningham. As we continue to work towards the park's restoration, our shared focus should be ensuring that it becomes safe and in an enjoyable place for everyone in our city and throughout the community. And key to this is the continued operation, of course, of Raging Waters. Thank you, and I look forward to the vote. Great. Thanks, Councilmember. Appreciate those comments. Councilmember Dwan. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, thank you, staff, um, especially PRNS, for putting this whole project together. And I appreciate that Councilmember Candelas and, and Ortiz have, have shore up um, to make sure that if our operator decide to end the lease for some reason, um, I do have a couple questions. Now, I know that there was six different vendors that was willing to bid on the, on the long-term project. Why did we go with the short-term versus the long-term project? Because I know that with the long-term project, there's, you know, the, the winner would probably put in 20 to $30 million in infrastructure improvement. Uh, with this short term, we're in the hook for three, well, three and a half million approximately uh, to reimburse. Thank you, Councilmember. Um, the real impetus is to be open this summer. Um, and if we were to do the long-term RFP, there was no way we were opening this summer. And one of the things, any, any of the water park folks will tell you that operate these, if you leave that water park sitting unoperated for a year or two, it's gonna be a real hard thing to open. So it was critical for us in our mind in, in terms of preserving the infrastructure that's there. There's a lot of improvements needed. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, and thankfully, California Dreaming has stepped up to do that. So they'll be involved, I'm sure, in the long-term process as well. Uh, but if we wanted to be open this summer, this was really the only way. Thank you. And is there a concern that the three and a half million dollars will be paid by or reimbursed by the long-term contract RFP down the line. And if so, does that prevent a lot of bidder to jump in because right off the bat they're in the hook for three and a half million dollars? Yeah, we don't, we don't believe that will be a barrier. Um, in we did talk with other uh, potential operators. They all had a similar sort of take that, hey, if we're going to invest a lot of money in a very short period of time and we don't have this long-term stability, then, then we're putting up a lot of money and walking away. That's not fair to us, and we agree. So that would be built into the RFP. So anybody who's going to bid on the RFP will know going in that there's this potential liability sitting there if uh, California Dream is not, um, is not awarded. That said, all that we've talked to say the same thing California Dreaming. They see a really big opportunity here. 
uh, they, so they see it in different ways and different things, and that's what's going to be kind of exciting about the RFP process because we'll get different ideas, we think. Um, but everybody sees the potential here, and they're all willing to put additional investment into it if they're in the long-term deal. Well, thank you. I guess I got a few months to work out just to get my body in shape to get out there and have fun. Thanks. Not even going to comment. Councilor Foley, <laughs> floor is yours. Yeah, I'm not going to comment either. Um, <laughs> so just, uh, first, thank you to California Dreamin' for, I love that name, uh, for coming forward with uh, an option or a lease agreement for six months and then an extension for another six months. That's uh, uh, really putting a stake in the ground that you're committed to this project and uh, want it to succeed and move forward. And thank you to staff as well for moving so quickly because the risk of not having that park functioning is greater than um, than leaving it not work and then come back three or four years. The amount of infrastructure and cost that we'd have to put in to bring it back up to usability is, would be tremendous. So I, I appreciate that. But I do have a, a question about the, th the, the reimbursement, if you will. So just so I understand, so if, if California Dreamin' has a six-month lease for this year. We can renew it for another six months at the city's option. I'm sure they would hope that we do that. I'm sure, I don't, I, I'm assuming we're gonna do that. And, but if during the RFP process, so when are we gonna put out the RFP process and will it include a refund or a credit to the city of 3.4 million or whatever to the city if California Dreamin' is not the successful bidder in the RFP? So a couple points there. Um, a, it's not a six-month extension. Um, this, they're, they're assuming an existing contract that goes until March of next year. Then we're adding six months onto that in the event we need that summer, right? We didn't want to be back here in, in February next year saying, oh, shoot, we need, we need more time for the summer. Maybe something went sideways with the RFP or whatever. And then we have another six months that we could extend beyond that at our option. And that's mainly to be certain all the negotiation happens, all the council conversations have happened and everything's approved and we can also get the operator in there. You know, if it isn't California Dreaming, they'll obviously have to mobilize. California Dream would have to demobilize. So that all that takes time and effort. Um, our, my vision was that they would pay California Dreaming directly rather than pay the city and then we turn around and pay California Dreaming. And it's important to recognize in the, in the, the agreement we're saying up to 3.45 million on the projects we agree as city staff are eligible and qualify. And there are plenty of them to do. Believe me, there's more than three and a half million dollars of work that needs to be done there. But this is what's gonna take to get, our, get things open and things in a place where people are really gonna have an enjoyable experience. So that's how we would envision that. That would be in the RFP. So anybody who would bid on that would know going in, if California Dream doesn't get it, I'm gonna owe them money on the, on the front end. Got it, okay, that's, that's really helpful. So we approved this contract today. What is California Dreamin's timeline for opening up the park? We will open on time this year. Which is? I believe Memorial Day weekend. That's the target. 
But uh, we'll probably have that contract signed before the week is done, if you approve it. That's exciting. I look forward to supporting it. Thank you, California Dream, and thank you to staff, too. Great. Thanks, Council Member. Once again, thanks to city staff, uh, in particular, Shannon Dominique, for, for bringing this home in a timely fashion. Thank you to California Dream. We look forward to working with you all. I think we're ready to vote. Motion passes. Okay, great. Congratulations. Thank you all. Okay, we're on to open forum, which is an opportunity for members of the public to comment on city business that was not on today's agenda. Do we have any cards? No public comment. Okay, thank you all. We're adjourned. <laughs>